Sometimes when you're driving down the road all by yourself, you begin to hear a voice that tells you you need to look around, pay attention. Maybe something isn't quite right. That voice is me. It's the voice of Gord. Welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. Got a very interesting episode here for you guys, another roundtable. I've assembled some fellas with a long history and a great deal of experience in the realms of hitchhiking, jumping trains, and otherwise slow and economical transportation, to put it a certain way. A couple of them are professional writers. Uh, one of whom is an amateur but has been burning up the pages of Twitter with beautiful and amazing threads as of late. Yeah, I've got James Pogue, who writes for Harper's, Vanity Fair, and the New York Times. Joseph Keegan, a PhD student at Tulane University in philosophy. And self-described happy Christian vagabond and bon vivant. Um, the Twitter sensation known as uh, Adirondacker, a.k.a. at Shagbarkick, who you guys would have remembered from a previous episode titled Adirondack Supremacy. The boys joined me for a very lengthy and wide-ranging roundtable discussion on jumping trains, hitchhiking, all of these modes of travel, what it all means. Um, I- I'll try and spare you any more of an intro here but i got a couple of pull quotes to try and bring you all in this one's from joseph to inhabit the american spirit to feel the frontiers the frontier has been lost and then this one from andy is is a way to experience the humiliation and the penitential aspect of hitchhiking where you're sweating in the sun no one wants you people call the cops on you and you just maintain a loving, kind disposition, and you get these quick biographies of people, and it gets so addictive, and people pick you up, and they dump everything out on you, and so to try and live a Christian life, it felt like a good exercise. So yeah, if you want more of that, stick around. There's almost three hours of it. The boys discuss a fairly famous underground traveler tome called Evasion, and, and, and many other things. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Uh, a little housekeeping before the show starts. My written content and platform, which also hosts this podcast over and above all the other platforms, uh, at Substack there, autonomoustruckers.substack.com. Last week I hit 500 subscribers, which I feel is a pretty important milestone. I've had a few people express the desire to contribute financially to the show normally you know i don't i don't ask for money i i I mean to keep the podcast free but if you feel like the podcast or my written content gives you some value and you want to exchange that value i've now set up a subscription over at autonomoustruckers.substack.com for the time being it will afford you nothing more than what you're already getting because I have no idea how my schedule is going to crack out or if I'm ever going to 
stop being chained to the steering wheel of a big truck. So I make no promises that there will be anything extra. But if you feel like you want to contribute, I'm happy to take it. All right. Um, I hope you all had a good July 4th weekend. This episode will be dropping uh, Wednesday, July 5th. Upcoming episodes of the show in the next couple of weeks include a, a lengthy discussion with my friend Brett about the ongoing situation in South Africa. Brett's from Cape Town. It's very interesting chat. And then with a young lady named Laura Andela, who's a cattle hauler and a fairly new truck driver. She's a very, very interesting young woman, and I think you guys are going to enjoy hearing from her. All right, everybody. All aboard, and let's explore the world of jumping trains, hitchhiking, and traveling rough. G'day, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. Uh, I'm Gord. This is my voice. Today's a special one. Um, you're going to hear four voices today, mine plus three guests. Uh, this is the second roundtable in the history of this podcast, and I'm very happy to be joined by some gentlemen to explore um, what it's like to be a young guy traveling around via unconventional means. This podcast is ostensibly about trucking and truck drivers, of which I've been one my whole life. But I've been on both sides of the hitchhiking equation, having picked up hitchhikers and hitchhiked extensively myself. So I brought you a, a, a sort of quite the crew of guys who've done many of the same things. A couple of them are professional writers and have spoken about it at length. And one of them, one of the gentlemen here is a repeat guest, the first repeat guest of the Voice of Gordon podcast. Uh, Andy, Mr. Shagbar Kick from Twitter whose threads I'm sure you all enjoy. So uh, let's let, let's talk about hitchhiking, trucking, jumping trains. Uh, Andy, you start and everybody introduce yourselves. All right. Yeah, well, it's, it's good to be here again. Um, yeah, I, uh, I spent about five years hitchhiking around mostly the United States. Uh, I, I have ridden a couple trains, but I was never really like a, you know, train, train core kind of guy. I was always a what they call a ramp tramp uh, and been all over the country doing that. And then now I'm uh, I've kind of settled up. I joined the military for a while and I'm about to get out. And I, I honestly think I probably will keep traveling the more that I think about it. So. In spite of having recently purchased a home. Yeah, it's cheap enough. I don't really care. You know, I, I it's nice to have a home base, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, it, it feels like something in the blood. So, you know, Oh, and I guess I'll say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 29. I'm from upstate New York and I don't know, upstate, upstate kind of shaped me in a lot of big ways, uh, like being on the road and seeing the whole country and then coming home. Uh, you, you really, I don't know. I learned a lot about my home as a traveler. Um, so I don't know. I think a lot about home and I think a lot about traveling and I have a hard time picking one or the other. I, I kind of always go back and forth. Joseph. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Gord. Uh, my first hitchhiking was in um, the Ohio Valley, uh, where, you know, Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky meet. First train I ever rode was out of Indianapolis, um, and I got pulled off in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, spent about five years doing the sort of whole, doing the whole thing, 
um, gave it up around, I want to say, you know, 2010 or 2011 and moved to a farm in Southern Kentucky for a couple of years. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a thing I think, I think a lot about it's a sort of period of my life that was really formative for me. And, um, it is a kind of, you know, possibility of a way of living that I sort of puzzle over. So, um, I'm, I'll be excited to sort of chat about it with all, with all y'all. And right now you're pursuing, um, some postgraduate work. Do I have that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, um, I'm a, a, a PhD student in philosophy at Tulane University, which is actually a very funny state of affairs because I used to go through New Orleans constantly back in my early 20s when I was doing all this traveling. I uh, first time I ever came to the city, I rode a freight train down from Birmingham and I, um, you know, rode trains in and out of New Orleans on many occasions back in the day. But now I'm here as a, a professional kind of person uh, wearing button down shirts and um uh, being respectable in various ways rather than being drunk in the French quarter <laughs> and trying to get money out of people by, you know, hollering really bad songs at the top of my lungs. So um, it all comes full circle, I guess, in some strange way. Oh, thank you for coming. Uh, James. All right. Um, thanks for having me. I, uh, my name is James Pogue. I'm a journalist. Um, for the hated liberal media. I'm a contributing editor. <laughs> contributing editor Harper's, uh, probably most people listening to this will know me uh, for writing for Vanity Fair um, about national politics, right for the New York Times. I, Gord, uh, you might like this. I'm kind of a middle ground between maybe everybody here uh, in the sense of being like Joey from the Ohio Valley. I caught my first train out of Cincinnati. Uh, I did that after I dropped out of McGill University in Canada. Um, Montreal. And, yep. Uh, salut les gars. Um, and I, um, long story short, I dropped out of McGill in a weird way to rediscover America. I hitchhiked uh, largely in trucks. I don't like riding with um, passenger drivers. That's my own personal personal preference. So like I knew a lot about the trucking scene via that, which is a weird picture. Um, I rode trains, but not as seriously as Joey. I was in the anarchist lefty activist, whatever you want to call it scene, but not as seriously as Joey. Um, I'm very into the kind of like rural life, but probably not as seriously as Andy. I left train hopping and maybe we could talk about this too. Like I moved to Africa and I ran logistics for a crew guys, Canadian guys, uh, pretty rough characters looking for gold um, and worked for some evil companies and evil governments doing that. And then I translated that kind of restless urge, whatever you want to call it, into journalism, which gave me an excuse to, to some degree, pursue that lifestyle for a living. And I'm lucky, I'm lucky and crazy enough to have been willing to pursue that and to make what money I do off of that. So that's, Kind of worked out um and so we can talk about that too because I've, I've tried to carry that forward in my own weird way but if you tough. don't mind me asking um you've appeared and you've done some work with some other associates uh the doomer optimists mm -hmm. shout out to all those guys um there's a particular corner of twitter they inhabit and there's a few people that are like arch localists um anarcho contrarian boiled owl few people always extolling the virtues of being home and here we are um about to have a very lengthy discussion about not being home but in your uh appearances on doomer optimists and in your writing you like you've been all over the place like wyoming california 
writing about environmental issues, um, chasing down, you know, uh, the, 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 pardon me, the disciples of Peter Thiel, supposedly. Um, you've been kind of all over the place with your writing, which I guess has furnished you a way to keep moving around and get paid for it. True. I mean, I, one thing, probably friend of the pod, or at least friend of some of us on here, uh, Chris Arnotti said once, he's sort of, he's like a localist in outlook, but a globalist in habits. And like, I kind of feel like that fits me. Um, I might actually throw this to Joey a little bit, but I came to train hopping because it was a way of renouncing this kind of hellish race for stuff that we all live in. And I came to it actually, because I was like, this is the easiest way I can find to live in a completely like self-sufficient and simple way. Because like when you're on the road and you're really scummy, like I, I lived for like nine months on $400 or something. I'd worked as a handyman in New Hampshire. And then like, I just like never made or spent money. And there are ways to do that. I guess if you live in a highly fertile environment and you have livestock, you can be quote unquote self-sufficient, but as a plug and play way of being this kind of American ideal of self-sufficiency, I found train hopping to be the easiest and most accessible one. If somebody had given me 6,000 acres and some startup capital and I could have done that, I might've done that instead. But traveling to me was a way of being, it was a way of accessing the American ideal of I take care of myself, honestly. Should I say some words to that? Uh, sure, I don't know. I was curious if you, yeah, I was curious yeah. if that, that tracked at all to your experience. Well, I, I think that I think that sense came later for me um, after a lot of reflection. I mean, I, I, you know, I was just like a bored working class kid in West Virginia and, you know, graduated high school. And then briefly, you know, West Virginia is one of these states that if you're like a good public high school student, they'll give you a um, scholarship to any of like the local kind of mediocre universities. And so I sort of stumbled my way into Marshall University for like a single semester and then dropped out. And. And then I had, you know, I had a, a, a few close friends, one in particular with whom, you know, we were sort of discussing various sorts of political matters and we came, across, we came across, you know, kind of like anarchist and like environmental uh, radicalism of various kinds and uh, felt very inspired by it. So for me, it was kind of a confluence of like boredom, desperation and a sort of like political spiritedness that. Uh, just sort of drove me, drove me out. I like, I wasn't, I wasn't like driven to anything in particular. I just knew I was kind of driven out of whatever I'd been living in, which was this, you know, very like dull, boring, proletarian narrowness of, of, you know, my, my, my sort of childhood life. And, of you know, like, I mean, anybody who grew up in, in sort of like middle America in the, you know, nineties and early two thousands, there was nothing to do. If you were like a teenage kid, and like, I'm sure this was the case in Cincinnati also, like there was just nothing, there was nothing for any, it was like, you know, what, what, what we were inhabiting was like a blast zone of what used to be, a, a, a you know, a, a, a sort of, you know, civilization, if you want to use that term, but <clears throat> there were, you know, all, you know, businesses shut down, you know, various economic depressions had swept through and, and knocked everybody out of jobs. I mean, Really, like when I was, you know, graduating high school in, in West Virginia in 2005, I was graduating at the time of like the early that the, the, the early seeds of the opiate crisis were being were, had been planted and were starting to grow. And so, you know, that whole region of the country was just full of like, you know, heroin and and misery and 
Um, so, you know, like, I, I think, you know, sort of being honest about my early motivations, I just like was driven by a kind of like this, this t total sense of negation. I was just like, not this, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever. I, I, you know, went and bought a backpack and just started walking on the highway and like found my way in like, to, you know, Portsmouth, Ohio for a period of time. And like, then you just kind of kept traveling around that area. And I think, so, you know, hitchhiking came first. I think this is the case for most people who, who do, do some traveling like this. Um, you know, I spent a, spent a couple months on, on the road in that way. And then, then, I, you know, usually, you know, train hopping comes by way of a kind of inauguration by somebody who's been doing it because, right. It's, it takes knowledge. You have to sort of, you have to have a, a sort of sense of, of how to get on the train and what to do and stuff. So I met some people who did that and uh, it seemed a lot more fun and a lot less work. And so that was kind of the, <laughs> the inspiration, you know, it's a funny thing is that hitchhiking is extremely laborious. You know, you, you're just like, you're just like hoofing it in the sunshine for hours and hours and hours of the day. And you're, it's humiliating because these people pass you and sometimes people are insulting you and, you know, it's, it's, it can, not, it can be not a lot of fun, right? Uh, train hopping is sort of great because you just get to hang out by yourself in the jungle or with a friend. Um, you do a lot of sitting down. It's really leisurely. You can read a lot of books. Um, I did most of my reading I did for a couple of years was just waiting for trains. So I think I, I, I developed a sense of, of your sort of this sort of idealistic attitude of that. This is really a kind of like, you know, this is the, this is the way to sort of inhabit the American spirit. This is the way to feel the frontier after the frontier has been lost. This is the way to, you know, uh, sort of like feel the independence of your soul <laughs> in, in a time when that's really hard to do. But I think that that, that was a sort of later innovation for me and, and really from the jump, it was just a, it was just, you know, sort of a feature of just how dreary and boring um, sort of middle American young life was in, in the early 2000s. Right. Yeah, I, I got I got a lot of uh, thoughts swirling just from listening to you guys, because I can relate to everything you guys are saying and, and maybe even a little more where I dreamt of traveling since I was a, a single digit ages. I always knew that I was going to do it. And, I, and subsequently, I thought a lot about the genetic component, possibly, because humans didn't get out of Africa by just sitting there, you know. And so maybe some of us are just born with that inclination to, to pick up a, a rucksack and walk and go. Um, but I'll, I'll also throw another aspect in there because it's because it's true. Upstate New York is a totally depressed area that's been rapidly depopulating for decades. Um, so being young. And I, I'm a little younger than you guys. I graduated in 2011. Um, but, you know, growing up in the woods, there's no real opportunities that are really attractive. Uh, the, the guys that I met who are a little older than me who were working a straight job, um, they're paying high taxes. They're miserable. They're working too much. They never see their families. And you look at it and you see, well, what's it all for? You know, a lot of them are so miserable. Uh, that they're miserable to their families. They're not much of a husband. They're not much of a father. Um, and certainly in my own home, that was my experience. And so a lot of it for me, and I was an only child too. So I spent a lot of time in the woods as a teenager by myself. And at a certain point, I picked up a copy of the New Testament from the dollar store. And, and I think if you want to talk about the spirit of America, it's it would be hard to overlook Christianity. And I started off as a religious person. You know, I read the Sermon on the Mount. 
you know, where Christ says, don't worry about where you're going to stay or what you're going to eat or what you're going to do or who you're going to be with. Just trust. And so hitchhiking attracted me because it was a way to experience the humiliation and the, the penitential aspect of hitchhiking where you're sweating in the sun. No one wants you. People call the cops on you and you just maintain a loving, kind disposition and you get those those quick biographies of people and that gets so addictive and people pick you up and they and they um, they dump everything out on you. And so, you know, to try to live a Christian life, it really felt like a, a good exercise in that it almost felt vocational. Here I am going and loving people, you know, but the years wear on and and you can only take so much of of listening to the darkness and seeing the nasty byproducts of the society. And until I became a crust punk and an anarchist and I read evasion, you guys ever read evasion? Of course. Oh, yeah. of course. Of course. I read that. Classic. You know, yeah. Gordon, we, we have to evasion pill you, dude. It's it's so funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you yeah. know, he's on Twitter, right? Yeah. It, is he really mad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm mutuals with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm probably yeah. jealous oh. too. Yeah. He's on Twitter. Him. He's still he's still doing his thing. It's a different like he's like scamming hotels and stuff now, but he's still out there. He's still vegan. He, still sober. he crashes he's still traveling. Yeah. Wedding he's wedding crashing and hotel scamming is like his new thing. He he yeah. yeah he's still. He's still doing doing his thing in a in, in a different respect. I was gonna say, Andy, just to interrupt you briefly, uh, you were something like a travel, you know, like um basically itinerant monks would wander around and and mm -hmm. sort of be the ones to whom people gave confessions. And yeah, there really is this sense when you're like the the stranger in the car with the with the person, they'll just they'll confess to you, you know, and there really mm -hmm. is this kind of like monastic yeah. sort of quality to it. I, I used to get that myself being on the other side. So full disclosure for anyone that hasn't figured it out yet. Like I'm from Canada. I'm a little, I think I'm a bit older than all of you guys. I graduated high school in 1997. Hitchhiking in Canada is a bit of a different thing. I don't know. Maybe some people did, but I didn't like attach all this like deeper meaning to it. I mean, maybe it comes later there's a lot of like weird cultural stuff right so like canada obviously big country slightly bigger than the united states way less population i grew up in southern ontario and people want to like get out of it because suburban southern ontario will just bore the living ever-loving snot out of you it's just like toronto just keeps gobbling up the rest of the southern half of the province and so people get what they used to call mountain fever and you know hitchhike to bc get a job on a ski lift, bum around, smoke weed. Maybe you go plant trees in Alberta, whatever. You know, some of the, some people come back, some people never come back, but it's sort of like this kind of a rite of passage. Right. And in my capacity as a trucker, I've picked up a lot of those people. And to your point about, you know, this sort of monastic vocation, where maybe you're a traveling monk and you're having to listen to everyone do confession being behind the wheel and the guy picking everybody up always hearing people's stories they're you know down on their luck broken relationships uh trouble with the law you know trouble with addiction you name it like i've heard it all i've they've all rode shotgun with me so um i i'm like i say again one of the reasons i wanted to speak with you fellas is 
I, I, I want to square all this. I mean, I have hitchhiked myself, but I don't think I was coming at it from the same angle you guys were. To me, it was like cheap way to get around, uh, kind of maybe mm. idealistic, you know, Jack Kerouac, whatever. I'm going on an adventure. Like, you know, um, I don't get enough of it from trucking because trucking, there's always a schedule. If I go hitchhiking, I can party and hang out with people, you know, like it was, it was a lot more simple and not like I wasn't trying to imbue anything into it. So carry on. There's, well, look, there, oh, oh, okay. Go, go ahead, James. I, I was just going to say, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to say something that you guys would, could have said, so I don't need to be saying this, but having lived in Canada, I've done the trans Canada and stuff, you know, and there's something about it. You, you're just like, you show up in Winnipeg. I mean, Winnipeg is Winnipeg for everybody listening who knows Canada, whatever, but like you can roll in there and there's like a house full of punk rock listening, ice road truckers who are like, you want some cocaine, you want to hang out, you stay for two weeks. It doesn't matter in the United States. <laughs> people Gordon's like, um, in the United States, like people look at you on those on-ramps like you did something wrong, like something went wrong in your life. Like it, it got bad. And like, you are, you can't help but notice that. And when people pick you up, like, you know, you always, you always get picked up by like a black preacher who's like, son, what happened? What happened? And you're like, I just want to get to Texas, man. But you know, you're choosing, you're choosing to have that question asked of you. You know that that question is coming. You know, you're kind of to some degree playing that game. And Andy, what you said, like, really, it kind of hit me in my gut because like, I was a very grandiose 18 year old and I was, I was traveling to change the world. Like I was traveling because I had read Walt Whitman and I was like, this is a way of imbibing this thing and giving my spirit of generosity and, and accepting from others generosity. And by proving that I will accept from others generosity, that America is a generous nation still, that we're not this like fallen evil capitalist, only money regulates this stuff. I was doing it for those reasons. I didn't have Christianity as a framework to give me that answer, but it was spiritual. Um, and again, sorry, I'm just saying this, like, pick this up guys, but like, I'm sure you had that experience of being on the on-ramp and being proud to some degree. Like I'm choosing to be seen as down and out and I'm okay with it. And I don't care how you look at me, but also feeling implicated, also feeling like if my mom saw me, she'd be embarrassed or something, something like that. You guys know what I mean? Yeah. I, I feel like a lot of times I met people who could relate in the sense that they had hitchhiked and slept outside and, and dumpster dove to, to live. But if they did the bulk of their travels in Europe, mm-hmm. they always seemed like a little soft. They always mm-hmm. seemed a little like, I, I don't know, like yeah. to do it in the United States, you have to, you have to be a little intense and it just requires a little vigor uh, that, that you don't necessarily get in other countries. Uh, I, I haven't hitchhiked a whole lot outside of the US, I've, I've hitched a little bit in, in the Maritimes and in Canada uh, and, and in Mexico too. But for the most part, whenever I met anybody is like, oh yeah, oh, I'm, I'm, I just got back from Denmark and Germany and stuff. They were always like, who are these goofballs? Like I'm out here, like, I don't know, like yeah. in, I'm in tears, I'm, I'm laughing. It's like the most intense thing. They're about to arrest me and I just have to laugh at it and mm-hmm. just accept my cross in that way. And I'm not, I don't want to have an ego about it or anything because I failed. I lost my faith. I became a drunk, you know, like I became a brawler. I became a petty criminal and I just became so nihilistic that I didn't believe in anything anymore because it got the best of me. 
you know, but um, going through that is is still a, it's a heart strengthening thing that mm-hmm. I'm still grappling with. It's I it's hard to talk about this stuff without getting a little bit sentimental sometimes because I miss yeah. it, but I hate it. And I, it was a mistake, but it was the best thing I ever did. And and I love America, but I hate America. I've seen so many um, yep. on ramps where people are are just look they're dead eyed. They look right mm-hmm. through you or, or they look mm-hmm. at you with scorn. Uh, but then I've seen so many people who uh, who who are just so loving and, and kind and decent that it, it has given me hope. So it's it's really difficult to parse through the whole thing. And I'll say one more thing. The strangest part of it is the isolation. When you stop doing it, mm-hmm. nobody that you meet understands what it was like. And you just got to deal with that yourself. And that's tough. You know, mm-hmm. hey, can I ask yeah. a, te- a technical question? Um, just to help with my own perception, because you guys are t- talking about being on the on-ramp, getting arrested. I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. In many places in the United States, it's actually illegal to hitchhike. It's illegal to be a vagrant. I, I got this, if, if you guys don't mind, because no. I've, I had yeah. to explain this to the police so many times. And if you know police, they don't like it when you have to explain things to them. They, they want to be the one who's right. In every state except New Jersey and Nevada, the way that the law is written is that is it is illegal to hitchhike in the roadway. But if yeah. you look at the definition of roadway, it excludes the shoulder and the slope. So the law is only written so that you can't block traffic and get in the way of cars to hitchhike. But if you're on the shoulder, it's legal. Of course, the police don't know the nuanced legal differences and they just think it's illegal and you have to do the work of gently explaining to them that they don't actually know the law they're trying to enforce and that's very mm-hmm. difficult to do yeah just, and just I, for the listeners just for the listeners there's like all three of us like immediately throw up our hands we're like no it's not illegal like all of us had a very visceral reaction to that question yeah and but let, let me know for you gord too i mean the the This question between the U.S. and Canada is one of the starkest differences between the two countries that I experienced. You know, I spent I spent a fair amount of time in like, you know, Eastern Maritime Canada. First time I ever went up there, um, I was walking across the border uh, north of I can't remember the name of the town in Vermont. I think it was just whatever the interstate is that goes up from Burlington. Probably um, Derby Line or something, maybe. Yeah, that's it. It's a Derby Line. Yeah. Yeah. I was I I had gotten dropped off at the border and I walked up and, you know, the American border patrol will be vicious to you. Uh, anytime that you're, that you're a sketchy weirdo near, near one of these American border posts. And so it was like me and my girlfriend at the time who was, you you know, usually whoever I was traveling with is either like a good buddy or some, somebody I was dating. And, um, we walk up American border patrol are just vicious and they're, you know, they're searching all of our stuff. They're asking us crazy questions, whatever. We finally get through. They're like, sure, you bums, you whatever, you're American citizens. We can't really arrest you for anything. We reach the Canadian Border Patrol. And it's like these like three like middle-aged women. They're like, hey, how's it going? And like waving. And uh, and you know, they check our IDs. You didn't need to have a passport to get into Canada at the time. And then I just kind of asked, I was like, uh, hey, just hey, just you know, just so I know, like, what are the laws about hitchhiking in Canada? And they looked at us puzzled and they were like, there aren't any. <laughs> so, I mean, it was just that the, the I, I, as you noted, like the cultures of these things are just so so wildly different. Like in the states, 
you know, anywhere you're going to try to do this thing, you're going to get stopped by a cop at some point. And the cop is either going to be like really, really mean and, you know, basically say, okay, you're clearly a drug addict. I need to search your stuff. Um, you're a jerk and I hate you for whatever reason, or they're going to play the, they're going to play it nice. And they're going to say, Hey, you know, I'm just looking out for you. Just want to make sure everything's okay, but blah, blah, blah. You can't be in the roadway, you know, they're going to come and mess with you no matter what. And it's going to be a pain in the neck. They're going to take 45 minutes out of your day. It's going to make all the people who pass you make, you know, look, it's going to make you look like a criminal. And that means you're going to stand there for longer than before. Seriously irritating. But in Canada, I never had the slightest hint of trouble. Like I had people go out of their way to be unbelievably generous to me left and right. Like it was just, there was, there wasn't even the slightest hint of the kind of, you know, like, like sketchiness that exists in America. In fact, I want to give a shout out. I don't know how many, um, I hope, I hope all the truckers in Canada listen to your podcast, but I got picked up. Um, I had ridden a train. Uh, so the famously there's a train yard and, um, just outside of Quebecois, uh, just outside of Quebec city in Charny, Quebec, where they do serious train checks and they'll throw you in jail if they catch you. Um, and I'd hopped off the train there and then I started hitchhiking and this extremely kind hearted trucker named Rick picked me up. And he let me sleep in his cab overnight, bought me 10 Hortons in the morning. It was just this, the, the warmest, kindest hearted dude. Uh, so shout to Rick if you're listening to Gord's podcast. Uh, thanks, man. It was, it was like one of the best rides of my life. I very much appreciate it. But yeah, Canada generally, like, you know, I, I, you know, I, had, I had a 70-year-old woman uh, pick me up in like Sarnia, um, Ontario. I had, you know, just, just like I had a guy in, in um, this was on Cape Breton in, in, uh, in Newfoundland. Um, I, was, I was hitchhiking out of um, Sydney trying to go back towards Halifax. He picked me up and he was just like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm heading back to my house. You know, uh, I thought, you, you know, maybe you guys want some dinner, or take a shower or something. He didn't seem like a sketchy weirdo. So he said, sure. He lived in this like 200 year old farmhouse on top of a mountain. And then after treating us to this lovely dinner and letting us clean up, he was like, you know, as it turns out, my daughter lives in Halifax, you know, I'll drive you guys all the way there tonight. If you want, it's like five hours away. And he just drove us all the way to Halifax. You know, people just do stuff like this in Canada. Whereas in America, you're immediately assumed to be some kind of criminal or a drug addict. And I, and, and frankly, I think one of the, one of the tragedies, and we can sort of chat about this too, about one of the one of the reasons why the culture in America is so bad is that probably nine times out of ten the people standing on the on the shoulder are criminals or drug addicts in the mm-hmm. states, especially increasingly now. Like one of the reasons I got out of the game eventually, or one of the reasons that you know I, I sort of you know just like I had that urge to get out of you know boring uh, middle America, I eventually had this urge to get out of the traveling life. I just kept encountering heroin addicts one after mm-hmm. another. And it was so utterly demoralizing and so like heartbreaking left and right, um, you know. And then I had a friend, you know, a good old friend who died of a heroin overdose. He relapsed, you know, and, and he, he ended up dying. And like just this flood of drugs that came into the world. And I want to say, you know, like the the sort of cusp of 2010 um, just totally changed it. Um, it and I think I think especially with, with the laws of train riding, it was both. Well, with hitchhiking, I think a lot of the culture changed with drugs. With train riding, it changed with a lot of uh, interstate commerce laws and illegal immigration stuff that was happening. So yeah. I'll sort of throw the throw that stuff, the sort of big picture stuff um, out there. So, so, you know, what was kind of changed the culture on this stuff? I think, you know, the Patriot Act ushered in a fair amount of things. And then like, you know, some some aggressive illegal immigration um, legislation 
uh, wound up with like, you know, ton, like tons of border patrol in Texas. Well, your, in your, your anecdote yeah. about approaching the border at Vermont, I immediately thought of that because one of the fun little presents of the Patriot Act, or I don't know if it was directly from the Patriot Act or some other piece of legislation afterwards. You guys know about the 100 mile exclusion zone along the border yeah. and the coast, right? Yes. So, yeah. sure United, yeah. United States Border Patrol. They can pull you over, search your car, search you, give you a hard time anywhere within 100 miles of the border inland. No justification, no warrants, no nothing. You're, they can assume the worst about you and your constitutional protections are gone within 100 <laughs> miles of the border. And that's still going on to this day. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that in that... I'm just going to piggyback off this. And then if it's okay, I actually have a question for Andy. Uh, but like, um, you know, that's what Joey's talking about. When, when, when you're up there, when you're, I don't know, Joey, I don't know if you've ever actually hitched across the border. I have twice, which is hard. Yeah. Hard se well, se several to, times. Yeah. It's I, hard to I, get people I, to carry you across the border. Um, yeah. I, ne I never had anybody carry me across the border in their car. They would always drop me off at the American side because they knew that it was going to be way too hard to do it. So and I got denied a couple of times. Like the last time I tried to cross into Vermont, they, they rejected me and I couldn't go in. So I've full on twice. And the, the, the last bit about Canada here, whatever, like, in, but I've full on twice crossed the border in strangers' cars where they lied and said, like, this guy's with me, um, which is only a Canadian thing. Like, there's no fucking way. Am I allowed to cuss on this? There's no fucking way an American would do that. Uh, right. And like with professional drivers, which is like head exploding like because professional drivers like are so hard to get you to just even pick up right um that's a canadian thing uh and and like all right last bit we're, we're sharing stories i'll tell you a story it was like midnight i'm coming south of montreal i'm heading to that border crossing you're talking about joey and we're in one of those like uh eastern canton towns i forget what it's called but you know one of those little apple cider towns and a like very very attractive 22 year old uh, University of Vermont student from Quebec is driving across the border at midnight. And I'm with, I never, I never travel with other people, but I was with a six foot three friend of mine named Quaker Dan. But if you saw Quaker Dan, you would not think he was Quaker. He's a big, big fella with a big beard and he looks scary. And she picked us up and I was like, just my American brain. I was like, you need to drive away right now. Like something terrible is going to happen to you. Like, this is insane. Like, um, and she not only picked us up, but carried us across the border and lied and was like, these are my friends. We're all going to UVM. Like, it's all cool. Anyway, um, I do. Think, God bless her. I know. Yeah. I know. It's a, a wonderful wow. thing. Um, I do think this is a super banal point, but we have guns and like, yeah. it's a thing I think a lot of people listening to this podcast don't need to hear this and blah, 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 but I'll say it anyway. Like Americans are hard people. And like, we have a lot of really dirty, dangerous stuff that like, it's not necessarily reflected in the statistics, right? It's like, okay, there are countries that are more, this is not South Africa. Right. But if you live where Joey lives in new Orleans or like you live on the road or you live in like a rural community, like, I mean, where I've been living up in, the region of Northern California where I'm living. If you live possibly where Andy is, I'm not sure. Life is violent, hard, and on the edge. And there are, you are on, you are in constant contact with people who are violent, hard, and on the edge. And you are used to that. And like, that might not be the experience if you live in Arlington, Virginia. But when you are doing this stuff, 
almost 100% of your world is that side of America. And like that thing becomes your world and become very used to it. And the thing I was going to kick to you, Andy, that I'm curious about is like, the reason I don't ride with people and like, but I know, or I think I could be wrong. You are younger than me. I pick up every time I see a train hopper, anytime, even if they're not actually flying a sign, I pick them up or I stop and I say, do you need something? Where are you going? Blah, blah, blah. Right. And these kids are fucking violent. Like, and a lot of these kids, they are out there. They're like, they'll see a guy with a golf club and like, you see their antenna go up. Cause they go like, Oh, is that guy like out to fight kids? Because they're, they're doing gang fights. They're arriving in Portland and there are, there are kids in Portland who don't travel, who are ready to go, like ready the when kids come off the train, they're ready to fight. They are ready to go. And then they drink themselves into absolute oblivion and then they fight. Yeah. And that stuff, I don't think that was certain. Like Joey, you probably know this. Like if you came from the anarchist background, there's this whole thing of like, there's politics to train hopping. There's, this is about a bigger thing, blah, blah, blah. But then you would meet the real kids, the real, real, real kids. And they'd be yeah. riding in a pack of 10, 15, 18. And they're like, you can't with roll like with like 20 us. dogs between them. Yeah. 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 And then right. like night hits and what are they doing? They're like, okay, we spanged enough money or we begged enough change to get money for beer and we're going to get drunk enough and we're going to find a fucking fight. And like, yeah, I don't, that's no, you're not doing that. If you're hitchhiking across Europe, I'm sorry. Like you're not no. looking for like the local kids with golf clubs and baseball bats to fuck them up. And that stuff, especially if you're alone is terrifying because like, if they get mad and they turn on you, it's, 12 against one and that vibe to me like I knew not to like not not to belittle myself I'm I'm a pretty tough person in general but I'm not tough like that I'm not looking to like hurt or get hurt all the time and I knew so many people who were like that and I you see this underbelly of America that is very much like you can access it so quickly and I was like me and my friends are not going to be able to do this stuff forever like this is a little mm -hmm. bit weird to me um and it sounds like Andy like maybe you had more experience or like maybe more like fell into it or more willingness to indulge it or something for sure for sure yeah I I was I mean yeah that's that's the that's the the duality of of my own life as a traveler is on the one side you have the the happy christian vagabond who is you know just trying to love people and everything and then when i lost it i lost it hard you know i had i had several friends die of overdose um and like talking about going back to the the hitchhiking confessions you know i dealt with probably about a half a dozen actively suicidal people that I had to talk through and a couple of them did successfully kill themselves and a couple of them one in particular actually got my email and emailed me years later and said thank you you saved my life but you know you deal with that level of intense stuff on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. if you talk to anybody who's a former addict a combat veteran a police officer uh an emt they get this part of their brain that deals with stress and they hate it, but they're addicted to it. And it darkens your whole worldview until if you are not careful and you don't have a community and you don't have a support system and you don't really believe in much, you will become so nihilistic that that, that group 
vibe of of almost like uh, spontaneous gang violence almost mm-hmm. where you just you do you get you pull up into a town and you want to black out and uh you want to you want to beat the shit out of some people together with people who you've never met before and you may not see tomorrow and they could turn on you at any time you get hooked on it you get hooked on it it was always kitchen staff i don't know why but kitchen <laughs> staff getting off getting off work you know you, it was a sure shot you hang out behind any restaurant eventually you'll be you'll be fighting the chef you know and and you just get hooked on it like you feel like pirates you know mm-hmm. you feel like pirates but then it goes on and it goes on until you know people start dying and people start getting into rehab and maybe you yourself get involved in some drugs and alcohol and i never did drugs but i you know i was a drinker for sure and mm-hmm. um the yeah, um that stuff is tough j- just know? just like for an example for people listening like um like the first I was I was trained I actually I rode with a trucker I rode trains my origin story whatever I read I dropped out I, I caught my first train because I was able to I was working as a handyman at a camp in New Hampshire and like a really nice train hopper girl who was going to Smith College and had dropped out of that and then like <laughs> you literally uh she was many studying, such cases yeah yeah she was yeah. studying horticulture at Smith College um she always told the cops that when she got arrested um I was really curious and I wanted to know how to ride trains. And she sent me a handwritten packet with diagrams. Like this is a grainer. This is a, so a grainer for people is a kind of a car that holds grain, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's a porch on it. And then inside of like at the either end of that car, there's a little tiny hole you can hide in like a raccoon. Um, and she drew me like diagrams of grainers, how to ride intermodals, explained the whole thing. I had the whole thing laid out. It was one of the kindest things anybody's ever done. James, so let's let, let, let us briefly sing the praises of the Canadian grainer, which is not hiding in like a raccoon. Yes, but yes, they have a, double holes. The palace. Yeah. It is a palace for a, for, for a tramp. It's it's unbelievable. People people will ride people will ride coast to coast on in Canada just to like ride the Canadian grainers. Um, oh, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. I, I, ha- I have heard this, and I have only jumped a train once in Canada, just because I was too busy trucking and hitchhiking. But um, I, I, I rode. Have any of you guys rode in a container car? What you, like a, you mean like like a, like, a, like an intermodal stick? In, in, yeah. In so basically, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah. they're, they're not flat. It's like a gunnel. It's like a canoe. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. The, they're they're 53 foot long because you got 53 foot boxes here in North America, which don't leave North America because nobody else has boxes that long. But then you get a sea container that's only 40 foot sitting yep. in the middle. Mm-hmm. So you have a six yep. and a half foot space at either end. And oh, yeah. um, you can sort of like sit down in it if you want or get up on the catwalk. I, I jumped a train. Uh, my, my uncle Bruce used to live in this place called Armstrong, Ontario, which is north of Lake Nipigon, like 150 miles north of Thunder Bay. And the CN line goes through his town and there's a crew change station. So the train always stops there. And so all you got to do is like be on the east side of town for the westbound train and just wait for it to stop and then walk along, pick whatever car you want and hop in and just make sure you don't get caught and get out before you end up in the Winnipeg um exchange yards and but don't it, crack the container don't crack the, can. Don't crack yeah, the container don't, yeah i had no inter- yeah. interest in thieving anything but andy you had this really shit hot twitter thread here a little while ago which i commented on about your an idea you presented here earlier about the sort of genetic 
predisposition to traveling, wandering around. Um, you guys have been speaking an awful lot about violence and, you know, addiction, people with problems. And like, I, I don't want to sound like Mr. Race scientist here or potential eugenicist, but like, there's there there are those who think like there's like a sort of either genetic or class dimension to the proclivity proclivity to that type of behavior and i don't know maybe maybe i've just lucked out like a couple of people i've picked up hitchhiking while i've been trucking word you know they gave off the vibe or they discussed their addictions but i never really bumped into anybody that was violent and or nobody that ever really expounded on that maybe just shit luck but like i wonder if there's some connection between the like proclivity to traveling and then the sort of like you know stereotypical oh look at these irish they're drunk and fighting again like is there some connection here am i am i missing i think there is i mean my my specific story is kind of wild because I grew up with no father, never knew the man's name, never knew what he looked like, didn't know anything about the man at all. And then, you know, I travel, I have this whole life on the road. I joined the military and then COVID happens. And during lockdown with COVID, I, I was like, I'm going to find my dad. And I, you know, I searched for him on Facebook or whatever. And uh, I started talking to him. I gave him my number. I said, you call me, you know, and we started talking. One of the first things he told me was that, you know, he's been on the road for over 30 years. And then I asked him about, well, what about, you know, your father and your father's father? And apparently it goes all the way back. Uh, my, my great grandfather on his side was an old school American hobo in the Great Depression. Um, and actually, I met my paternal grandmother a couple years later. And uh, they're Mormons, so they do the genealogy stuff. And uh, they've got all the records uh, showing that we're direct descendants of Buffalo Bill. So this stuff goes way, way, way back. And, and we're also on my father's side, we're mostly Scottish. And, you know, in, in Scotland and Ireland and, and the, the Celtic Isles, there's a whole traveler culture that's so old school. It's actually ethnic. They're their own group of people that are insular and do not mix with regular mainstream uh irish and, and scottish peoples so i think oh, that's i fucking lineage... hate pikeys <laughs> yeah, right i think the lineage goes way back but here's here's what i think i think there's a lot of people who have that lineage and don't know it they have that genetic proclivity to travel and they don't know it and so it's extremely frustrating to have a built-in biological old school genetic desire to do something and there's no way to do it you don't see it mirrored back to you it's not presented as an option and that's how you get the drunken irishman that's how you get the gangs in new york and stuff like that because my father before he was traveling he was an old school nazi skinhead in orange county california and all he ever he, his whole life was violence when my mother got pregnant with me he was in jail he was in jail when he learned that uh, that he was going to have a son, you know. So why was he doing that? I talked to him a lot about that. He said, I was just pissed off. I was frustrated. Nothing made sense. And then shortly after, he started working with the circus. And he's a carny. And ever since, he's sworn off the violence. I mean, he'll get in a tussle here and there. But 
for the most part, he, he doesn't do drugs anymore. He doesn't, he doesn't do violence anymore. He's, he just lives on the road and he's content to do that. So that tells me a lot about genetic proclivities. That whole story tells me a lot that there are people who are just built to wander. And if they don't wander, their life is going to be difficult and they're going to get involved in some dark stuff, you know? You know, going to that too, like, shout out to David Graeber, uh, buddy of mine. Like, uh, but, you know, David had a thing in his new book. He points out something that kind of, you know, but kind of blows your mind if you think about it. Like, if you were a native on this continent, uh, pre-contact, people traveled just for fun for like 800 miles, 1,000 miles, just to be like, oh, I'm curious what's going on on the Trans-Appalachian. Like, let me go see over here. And actually, like, you know, according to whatever research he's basing this on, I don't know the statistics, but he was like, if you actually think about it, people back then traveled far more than we do. Uh, and they were much freer to do so because their obligations, they didn't have credit card bills, they didn't have phone bills, they didn't have all this stuff that, that bound them to a place. They were much freer to do so. And so actually like, and then you think about the scotch Irish thing. I don't, I don't know about genetics. I know, I know literally nothing about genetics. I'm not waiting into any of that stuff. I'm not saying it's bad to talk about it. I just don't know anything about it. But like, I'm reading a social history of cattle right now. And you're reminded as a scotch Irish person, as I am, like that, the entire Scotch-Irish history, the reason that like part of the reason that we have this North-South division is that you had a group of people who were based on cattle raising and unfenced wandering life, pastoralism, right. who came to the United States and who then roved across a continent exporting a way of life based on pastoralism and unfenced wandering cattle raising life. And they set themselves, they, they viewed themselves, whether consciously or not, they understood themselves as people who were unfenced, unbound people in opposition to bound, fenced, localized people. Right. And that is a conflict that has existed in the United States forever and now shapes us vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. That's why we're such a weird, unique nation. And like, that is a, if you are a Scots Irish, for better or for worse, that is a part of your heritage. That is a part of your song and story that makes you who you, who you are. And like, I read that and I was like, oh, like this explains so much about like why I am the way I am. Like, um, and I don't know if that's genetic. I don't know if it's song and story. I don't, perhaps those things intermingle. I don't know how that works, but like, it's definitely real. Um, that's all I got, but yeah. Yeah, many, I mean, it, it, many, it, it, many such cases. Oh, oh, yeah, no, sorry about that. Um, I'm my mother, Scottish, dad, Irish, Italian. The Irish on my dad's side are ultimately Scottish. Their Highland clearances kicked out, ended up in Ireland. So, yeah, I, one of my great great grandfathers served on the Cuddy Sark, which was the last high speed tea sailing ship. Another great-grandfather worked on the Titanic. Um, you know, my dad, trucker, both my uncles, grandpa, you know, the, the wandering around. My my One of my aunts lived in the high Arctic for a while. Like, I, I, I get that vibe. Um, quick question about David Graeber. I, did I hear incorrectly? Is he no longer with us? He is no longer with us. Yeah. Right. Um, and author of Bullshit Jobs, famously. Bullshit Jobs, great book. Um, author of Debt, a five thousand year history, uh, which is a, just a mind blowing book. Um, 
and then the, the new one um, is called The Dawn of Everything, which is a, it's a big read. But it's like if you're interested in like, can we live differently and be freer? Like it is an argument that we can and that it's not as hard as you think and that we don't all have to head constantly towards a techno capitalist dystopia. Um, and so it's a counter narrative against this idea that this has all just been one march of progress towards this inevitable future. Um, and so the whole book is pointing out times in history where people have thrown off hierarchical systems by choice and been like, actually, the we just don't like that stuff and we're fine. Um, somewhat and somewhat in the same vein as uh, James Scott's The Art of Not Being Governed. Very much, very much. And they were friends. Like they, they, this very much similar vibe. Uh, but like the, the, the kind of fascinating thing about that book and the reason I think that it can really appeal to both like right wingers and crazy lefty progressive anarchists or whatever, like uh, is that it's an argument that cultures can choose their own path and that this is a, this was not all a story written by material design way back in the day and we have no choice about it um and so if you want to choose to have your trad christo whatever happy world like with rod grayer that's a choice that you are freer to make than you are aware of like it, the, the implications of that book are actually like really big i think and it's well worth reading it whatever political stripe you're coming from I'll just throw it briefly. I come from a very like Hobbit-like people who who disdain uh, seeing the world very much. Um, so the 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 genetic account is interesting. I'll have to think about it more, I guess. But um, it doesn't it doesn't. I don't think it explains my own thing, which feels a lot more like spontaneous and kind of unpredictable. Um, and I think that you know a lot of the most of the people that I really befriended were people that you know when they started doing this kind of stuff, just, you know, whatever they were doing was just inscrutable to their whole, their whole world that, you know, it was just, we, you know, we, we sort of had like a, like a, a, a close, the, the close friendship that was forged in the fires of like being illegible to our, our, you know, otherwise beloved family and you know, sort of life that came before. Um, I mean, I also like, I would, I would think that, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm more interested in the question of like, I mean, another way of thinking about this kind of stuff might be like barbarism, you know, that like, to some extent we were like barbarians, right? That we, we, we inhabit, we deliberately took on uncivilized way of being. Um, we did not uh, sort of abide by the conventions of society. We did not, you know, uh, exist in like, you know, a, a, you know a, a very economically productive situation in, in, in within the sort of larger political economy. Um, we committed many crimes, I'm sure, between, <laughs> between all four of us. Um, and uh, I, I, it, it just seems to me that like maybe a way of understanding it might be from a more sort of like political philosophical perspective and that that with and especially I would say especially within America, right, which is founded on this very social contract understanding of of sort of community community belonging, right? Um, uh, it's a very, you know, the, we we are the first nation in the entire history of the world that was founded on like you know these these enlightenment principles of sort of like liberal, you know, rational being together as being the sort of nature of 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 human community. Um, but it 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 seems to me that you know I, I think this even goes back to a far more ancient thing um, that this impulse to this there's always some amount of a civilization that's like 
has an impulse to bar to barbarism <laughs> in, in whatever way that whatever shape that takes right like it, it it need not be you know like actually conducting sort of warfare but it can always just be a sort of like right just just as james was saying right this kind of this deliberate unplugging from civilized life to go off and do something else it, it just happens to be it happens to seem to me that america was especially fertile territory for this given the fact that you know that our our enti the entire political project was founded on this uh, this enlightenment liberal kind of thing, such that you could go and be a kind of crazy utopian religious community. You could go found New Harmony, Indiana. You can go found all these crazy things. You can go be the Mormons, sort of marching across the the desert um, and you know building a whole new civilization, and then eventually be kind of reconstituted into the whole again in some kind of crazy way. Um, that like. I mean, the, the American, not only the American spirit, but also like the, the, the American, like, you know, political philosophy, I think, allows for this kind of, you know, sort of insane frontiersman, like, just go do it and then nonetheless be a part of the thing, right? Like, I don't think Germans quite, quite think of themselves, like, if you're like a German and you like, unplug from society and like go i mean it, it just has a, a very you have a very different relationship yeah. to the whole right you know it's it's just like at least as he said like you know europeans just have a very different uh sort of uh, it, it smacks of something different if you go do something like this in europe right i wonder i, I, I wonder what yeah. like pardon me um the sort of bronze age pervert types and they're you know the call to adventure you know um barbarism going out there and doing it i wonder where this might cross over with those guys unfortunately got, those guys don't do anything so it's yeah, a, you know. <laughs> yeah. they want to have got, their cake and eat it too that's what they want they, yeah, they but, want the adventure without the humiliation and the suffering yeah that comes with adventure they want to be all crazy and badass frontiersmen warrior mode and then go back to their high net income lifestyle, mm -hmm, which is a fantasy. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. Yeah. And also those ideas don't seem to inspire like the kind of, you know, like, like spontaneous, um, you know, devil may care, throw caution to, you know, it, it, it actually seems to inspire like just getting a job, but then going to the gym, which is fine. I mean, that's, 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 that's fine. you know, that's, yeah. that's basically my life now. Right. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a much less spontaneous person than I used to be, but I do feel like, if we're trying to sort of like locate sort of the the origins of you know whatever produces this kind of um way of living in certain people um i don't i, I never met a single person like i i met so i met some really interesting christians on the road i met a lot of disaffected middle class kids i met a lot of really for you know kids like me who are like these sort of frustrated you know sort of you know proletarian weirdos um i met a lot of ex-military guys I, you know i met like lots of different kinds of people but the one kind of person i don't think i ever met the entire time i was out there was somebody who like you know spent a lot of time on the internet and then got inspired to go do fun things because they were on the internet it's like you know and granted back then the internet had a much different relationship to mm -hmm. to society right so like i mean i started doing this stuff in like 2005 or 2006 and st you still had to go sit at a desktop computer for the most part to go like plug into the internet but like you know Generally speaking, it was like, you know, there were books people were reading that were sort of inspiring stuff, but I don't know, it, it just, 
it's it's it seems to me that like yeah i mean you had your james pogues who were like reading whitman or like you know you had your evasion you know sort of people who were reading evasion and stuff like that but like if, you know the I, it would actually be worth kind of like doing a side-by-side -side study of something like evasion and bronze age mindset because evasion did in fact inspire a lot of people to go out there and like yeah like take their lives into their own hands and like do all this you know like go be a hero or something I, i'm not sure they put it in those words whereas i'm not sure that I don't know if I don't know what's going to happen with the other stuff. I mean, I I I I would be I would be pleasantly surprised if somebody was inspired by that book to do something like extremely interesting and inspiring. But, but I've, I've yet to see it. Well, well like post. Well, uh, so all right, now we're gonna go super. I mean, whatever. We're we're just talking books. Whatever. All right, fine. But like, uh, this this is kind of blowing my head off, Jared, that you brought this up because like, I got asked on a podcast not that long ago, like what like the first question on the podcast was like, what's your theory? What's James Pogue's theory of American history? And I was like, no one has ever asked this. I've been waiting my whole life to be asked this question. I had no fucking idea what I was going to say. And what popped <laughs> out, like what popped out of my mouth was like, we're the nation that legalized being a barbarian, like everywhere. For oh, that, that's all, so good. That's so good. For all of history, like you were, civilization was trying to confine you, trying to corral you. And this is like for everybody, anyone who's interested in this stuff, like you can read James C. Scott. James C. Scott is like the, the er historian of like what barbarianism means vis-a-vis -vis how we form states and stuff. But like, there's always this impulse to be like, I don't want to be ruled and I'm going to go to the mountains and be a barbarian. And like, he's actually accessing this whole larger conversation that I was not aware of at the time. You know, like, and it kind of blows my head off once I was made aware of it because, like, I train hopped to be a barbarian and then I went to North Africa. And, like, the most famous theorist of barbarianism before James C. Scott and who will ever live is this guy, like, Imin Khaldun, who wrote this book, The Mukadima, which is a theory of history that is civilizations become weak, decay, people eat, as he says, rich foods, and they decay and then like he's writing this in north africa in like the 13th century and then the hill he's, tribes he's a, he's a north african proto spangler yeah exactly <laughs> and then and then the hill tribes become super badass and they eat not rich foods and they're really tough and they sweep in and revitalize society is this, by taking over is this gentleman you're referencing not also doesn't he hold some kind of position in the sort of hierarchy of like Islamic philosophy? Like he's like one of the kingpins. I, I honestly don't know. Maybe I have that wrong. Yeah, um, I honestly, I once once I start talking about that, I do not know. I read the whole. Book. All those guys are Ibn this or Ibn that. Ibn There's that. Like, yeah, know, yeah. Um, it's a very like if you're. Um, I was gonna say he, he he's sort of famous for this kind of philosophy of history, but there's like you know. Uh, like Avicenna was Ibn something and Averroes was Ibn something. Like all these yeah. guys have sort of similar, similar kinds of. Uh, the, well, names. Well, the great, sure I mean, the great Islamic travel writer, Ibn Battuta, uh, like who like traveled around seeing two headed drafts and all this kind of stuff. But like the kind of the, the kind of Islamic Herodotus uh, is another Ibn. Um, and like, you know, if, if you're guys like us, like he's a predecessor to us, too, in a certain way. Um, but. No, I, I just think the barbarianism thing is actually super, super key to it, because if you don't want a credit card bill, if you do not want to be ruled, whatever drove you to road and rails, as we're calling it on this podcast, like 
part of it was that impulse. Part of it was the same impulse that drove a hill tribe to be like, uh, actually, like you don't have suzerainty over me anymore, Mr. Lord. Um, and like it's as much as this stuff can sometimes feel like cosplay. And I know so many train hoppers who are now professional writers who are like, oh yeah, that was a joking period of my time. I don't view it that way. I view it as actually like a part of a heritage that is really important and really politically significant. And like, maybe that's puffing myself up, but I just can't understand it in any other way. And I can't understand having gone through the brutal stuff that all of us have seen and gone through. Like I would not have done that for fun i'm sorry like i did it for other reasons oh, and, and br brutal I'll, I'll say something on on the barbarian part and 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 this whole why would we do such a thing because people always like asking that and talking about that is you have to remember that most human beings were nomadic or semi-nomadic for the majority of our history as a species and every nomadic people who became settled did not do so voluntarily almost ever it exactly. was forcible and violent conversion. And maybe maybe a word about the, the genetic trauma. You get the trauma of your ancestors were forcibly made to do something and that memory sticks. But the way I see it is I set out the first time and each subsequent time I went out, almost like imagine you're a lonely salmon and you set out upstream hoping to find your, your pod, your school of fish. And you go and you look and you search and you search and you search until eventually you just get tired. And then you go back downstream and maybe you do it again, maybe you don't. Or hopefully, to me, the big denouement to this is if those with these proclivities that we all share um, can actually get there and swim upstream and swim upstream and find like-minded company and not just find like-minded company like a band of crust punks raising hell and drinking and going to jail, but actually getting to the point where we can build nomadic culture capable of reproducing itself, capable of having children and taking them and, and, and traveling with them like countless human societies have done over the years. How do we get there? Can we get there? Or to me, there's this polarity in my heart of, do I go all the way and try to make that my life's work to build that level of nomadic community that isn't dysfunctional and is true to who we all are? Or do I just give up and just say, you know, it's a pipe dream. I live in a settled society and I'm going to have to just integrate myself into a normal life. I am constantly going back and forth uh, about that question. And I have to do a lot of that thinking by myself, which is very difficult, you know, yeah, can I? Yeah, I mean, the American guys... Constitution says that we can literally reconstitute the entire country. If uh, it's like, you know, we we just have a very different kind of political order here, and it's a political order that, just as James says, I think, uh, basically like allows for a, a a kind what would have been understood as barbarism to be reconstituted in the political project, and it actually be like an engine of like you know uh, a a kind of like political vitality for the country, right? Um, right. You don't have to leave it all behind and like abandon America. In fact, leaving it all behind ends up being weirdly American, right? This is kind of the kind of, you know, James and I have talked about this before on, 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 on the Doomer Optimism podcast. Like this is kind of the, the baffling thing about what it is to do something like that here is that, you know, even if like, you know, like, like I was, you know, I was like an anarchist back in the day and I, you know, thought that I was, you know, contributing to the downfall of technological civilization. But then it turns out that, that very 
idea that motivated me that then ended up sort of like, you know, brought me on this strange journey, you know, into all these different places around the country, you know, I ended up uh, sort of accidentally uh, living out the American spirit in my own crazy way, you know, and that's, that's, I really think that that's, that's special to this particular place. I mean, I, I sort of curious if Gord thinks that might be the same in Canada. I'm not really sure, but it's, it's, it's interesting to me. Before Gord comes back, I mean, just to flesh out that little like theory of history or whatever, like there is the the thing I think that makes traveling so important to, uh, I mean, all right, now I'm getting grandiose, but like, it's important to like have this thing that we're talking about be an option for other people. And like, it's funny to be doing this podcast because you were asking Gord earlier, like if younger kids can do it. I got an email like right before we sat down to do this podcast, like absolutely weirdly from a kid who was like, hey, I'm at Deep Strings College, the like kind of semi-elite, like off-grid yeah. college thing. In the desert. Yeah. And yeah, like a buddy of mine I played soccer with when I was 24, like I haven't seen in 12 years, whatever. Uh, he's teaching there and the kid is like all hot to trot to train hop. And he was like, I think I remember James having train hop. So like I got his email, like hit him up and the kid hit me up. And I was like, oh, this is actually important because like, I think like when we lost the frontier and, you know, not to be super woke and beat ourselves up for being bad people who are Americans, but like one of the ironies of this whole thing is like we legalized bar barbarism by taking barbarism away from other people who had it and it was pretty good for them and we did that too and that was a terrible tragedy but like absolutely true yeah one of the things that like we lost with the closing the frontier is the right of secession if you said like okay i'm not being treated well in cincinnati fuck it i'm gone and i can take care of myself therefore you have a political economy reason to have to take care of my needs you have to fucking listen to me because otherwise i can secede and that was a crazy thing that America gave to people. It was a huge amount of power to regular people. And as that closed, that went away. And like, we're all people in various ways who like found our option to secede to some degree and like to get that power back for ourselves. Even if like now we're like, or at least I am like old and boring and like, I don't do it anymore. But like, I had the option in my twenties to be like, it doesn't matter what you tell me to do. Cause I can take care of myself. And like, that's a really cool, important thing to keep alive, I think. Um, and like, if you take that from kids, if you take that from the world of like, there is, you cannot even envision a world without a cell phone and a phone bill, then like that kid has never really experienced freedom. And they've never really experienced what I understand to be America. And like that, I find to be really scary and dystopian in a in a super, yeah. super genuine, horrifying way. Um, and I feel really, really lucky to have had the chance to have felt that uh, I didn't bring a single device. I didn't bring an iPod. I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have shit when I went train hopping. And I'm not saying that to be cool. It just, I was lucky enough to live in a world where that didn't even feel that strange. Um, and Andy, you're younger. Like, did you have that feeling or like, did the machine get you? You know what I mean? Uh, well, when I traveled, I, I had a flip phone. I didn't use maps. Um, did the machine get me? Well, I just I guess, mean, like, did you always feel my... observed? You know what I mean? Like, did you always feel observed and known and cataloged and logged? Because I didn't, and I no. felt lucky. Yeah. 
That's no, no, I, I didn't. I didn't at all. And it's funny, too, because I guess I caught the tail end of that, possibly, because yeah. these days, like to this day, I have a, you know, I have a Nokia style phone, you know, like nice. I don't use the smartphone. I tell people if I want to go to the casino, I'd go to the casino. I don't need one in my pocket, you know, and the amount of judgment you'll get from regular people now. It's unbelievable. And in 20, even 2013, 2014, there were still a few people who, you know, they hadn't gone down that road or they weren't going to get a smartphone. Now, if you don't have one, you're considered very out there. And uh, there is a different vibe. Uh, and even I think about it sometimes, you know, about the people who are just a little older than I. You had the 90s where even CCTV wasn't around, right? So. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a whole different world of if you were a petty criminal, I mean, you really could make a go of it a little bit easier than you can today. Uh, it was a very strange difference with the technology aspect, you know. Well, of, of course, the ease of, of being a petty criminal is part of the, the engine that ended up, you know, making CCTV everywhere. So right, uh, this is the, the, the unfortunate, unfortunate dialectic. Have any right, of well, you guys ever, I, ju I just want to interrupt real quick. I'm really enjoying this and I want to like um, bring up a meme, you know, of old man yelling at cloud and where it concerns, this, where it concerns this conversation. Have any of you guys ever read the book, a book called the beach? Mm -mm. Um, it was made into a movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, probably late 90s no early 2000s and it was based on this book by a guy named alex garland who later became very famous for screenwriting 28 days later and ex machina all these like really sort of dystopian you know techno dystopian book uh, movies but in this book the beach there's a really famous scene and i don't say famous but like it's it's germane to this discussion so there's a bunch of backpackers hanging out in this joint in Thailand, right? And his book is kind of set in like 1993. And that's when like backpacking, you know, there's always been sort of like hippie travelers going to India, whatever. But in modern times, that didn't really start picking up until air travel became a little bit cheaper. And then um, certain countries had these like work exchange visas you could get, which I took advantage of as a younger guy. But anyway, in this scene in the book, there's all these people from all over the world hanging out in like this little camp they had made for themselves on an island in Thailand. And they're sitting around talking about like how the book, the, the, there's, the, there's these travel books called Lonely Planet. And how Lonely Planet had ruined backpacking because now everybody knew about everything. This is yeah. before smartphones, right. before mass adoption of the internet. These guys were bitching about a book telling other people how to do what they were doing. Right. I mean, one thing that occurs to me, right, is that, uh, you know, I, I'm sitting here next to my old crew change guide. This was from 2008, so I'm a little bit behind the times, but right. Um, you know, these, these little, these little books, you know, um, there was like a, a, a very heavy sort of moral culture surrounding the distribution of this particular thing, right? 
Um, it tells you how to do it. It tells you a lot of information about how to get to where you're, where you're trying to go. But right, the the you know the 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 legendary compiler of this, a guy named Train Doc, insisted that it never get uploaded to the internet, and you can you can never sell it, and it can only be passed sort of from one person to the other, right? And I think that like. And in and and this was, an, it was basically enforceable. Like if somebody knew that you yeah, were like, it worked. You know, it worked. It, that it was the worked. craziest yeah. part of it. it. Yeah. yeah. If 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 you if you got known as being somebody who was like selling crew change guides, like you you'd have a, a bunch of unhappy, angry people come and make your life really bad. And um, so I it, mean, was that, on, it was it was on LimeWire, and it got take people took it off. Like it went crazy. Like like people. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, the, the people enforce that stuff. I don't know if it's still enforced, yeah. but I remember during the era where you could get any information for free at any time you wanted and you still couldn't get a crew change. Right. Right. Yeah, it could, it could never become the lonely planet of train hopping, right? And 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 it, and it had entirely to do with like, yeah, this kind of, this sort of general, generally agreed enforcement of a rule uh, that, um, uh, you know, everybody just knew it and everybody just lived by it. And, and, I don't know how that happened, but it is, it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting sort of feature because right again, we're talking about a bunch of people, many of whom were violent, many of whom were, did a lot of drinking yeah. and they still, they, they still abided by the one law, right? <laughs> can yeah. I ask, can I ask actually though? Cause like in response to what I think you're saying, Gord, like to me, there's a difference to me, there's a difference between that stuff and like what we live now where like, like, okay, I, I don't, I don't like flying a sign and, you know, for, all right, for people who don't know the, the hitchhiking life, right? Like, like you, you generally, you're on an on-ramp, you hold a sign and you're going in a certain direction and blah, blah, blah. And then you deal with a passenger car and you tell your life story and they tell their life story. And it's a lot of emotional labor and you do all this other stuff. You right? follow the rules. You're following the rules. You do that. But like, I mean, you're going to follow rules regardless. For me, like I, I like to, and I don't even know if this, I genuinely don't know if this is still possible building up to my question here. Like I would stand outside of a flying J and I would say for I 500 times for every single ride I got, I would say, hey, driver, which way are you headed? Because uh, if you say, hey, driver, are you going north? They say no. So you have to get them to say which direction they're going. This is all this right. little subtle bullshit, right? Um, and then for every guy who in by his inclination, he wants to take you like nine out of 10 19 out of 20 can't take you for insurance reasons. And that was a, that was a change that like people of my generation had already lived through where it used to be like, it didn't matter as long as you got in the car, there's no way anybody's going to know that had already changed. And now trucking, like people can look this up. There's a great story by Robin Kaiser Schatzlin in the New York times about how trucking has become like an untenable dystopia or something. Google it. It's a great story. <laughs> I've uh, read it. And I, I, I have to admission. Uh, okay. My apologies to Robin. When I saw that, uh, some of the verbiage and rhetoric and writing he employed in that story, I got my backup because I thought he was literally plagiarizing stuff I'd written in other places. Oh, fair. I have since blocked him on Twitter because I don't want to know. 
<laughs> oh wow! Okay, I didn't know that. No, no, I didn't no, no, it's mean fine. To wait into I, something. Rob's no, a friend no, of mine. No, I didn't no, mean to it's say fine. That. I get where you're going with this, and yeah, the the, the truck the, the the trucking side of the hitchhiking equation used to be more reliable for giving people rides, and man, this could tie into a lot about what my project is about about how truck the trucking industry is so fucked up right now, and part of it has to do with all this insurance and safetyism and human resources, and the trucking industry's problem with like retaining people and they're always churning and burning and bringing new people into the business and the new people for many reasons, they don't know their heads from their assholes or anything. And they just do what they're told. Like they're more compliant. Mm -hmm. And that, that sort of spirit of like telling your dispatcher to go to hell or just like ignoring all of this stuff is basically gone. And I've always picked up hitchhikers the first crust punk weirdo I ever picked up hitchhiking was at the flying J on the West side of Montreal, like where <laughs> 20 and 40 come together right before you yeah. like go out towards the 401. I picked this kid and his dog up and I dropped them off like on the Gardner expressway. Like I got off and dropped them off right at young street in downtown Toronto. That what you're pointing to is the thing. And it's limiting the sort of hitchhiking world because like hitchhikers and truckers exist in a symbiosis, right? Yeah. Trucker, we're road people. We're, hey, right. well, well, we're similar. Yeah. One person's being paid to travel and another person is traveling in this mode because they don't get paid and they don't have money. Right. right. So like there's this, this weird symbiosis and you know, there's a lot of like, uh, crusty older conservative type truckers that would never pick up hitchhikers anyway i mean to make a broad statement but that it's sort of true um but that this tendency towards safetyism and the surveillance and the fucking driver facing cameras and elds and gps tracking and you got to be there yesterday and and the retention problem and the constantly churning through people is actually wrecking the old truck driver hitchhiker symbiosis mm -hmm. culture where you could reliably go to a flying J or some other truck stop and, and, and just like court the crowd. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would say, man, if I was going to tell a young person hitchhiking now that it's such that there might be any of those people still around, if they were going to go to a truck stop, you got to find the guys that own their own trucks that aren't working for some big company, there's a sort of vibe and a sort of aesthetic you can pick up. And it, it, you have to learn it from being in the business for a long time. It's not something that's like immediately apparent to outsiders. But like, if I had a kid with me that wanted to hitchhike and I took him to a truck stop and I, and there's, let's say there's 60 trucks sitting there or 40, I could pick the two or three that'd be like, those are your best bets. Go talk to those guys. Yep. Just I can spot yeah. an owner yeah. up anywhere. Just yeah, by the look of their truck, true. right? Yeah. And <laughs> not and not that's not to say that every owner operator is going to be cool and want to give you a ride, right. but that's your best bet. Right. Can I can I and I know I've been talking a lot, so I'm just gonna say one thing that really blew my mind. And I do think it's a this is like an America thing, a little bit like. One thing we've got this aesthetic, as you say, of what I call outlawish guys, you know, and like you're in the rural West, like there's a kind of guy whose vibe is outlawish guy. And 
if you are listening to this and you're a trucker, respect to you for what you do. But if you have your wolf belt buckle and your your outlaw on the back of your shoulders shirt and stuff, and you you look at you look at fucking hitchhikers and you say, son, get a job, all that shit. All of the outlawish motherfuckers are always the worst. They're always the worst. They have the aesthetic. They have the fucking cowboy hat. They have the big buckles and they are the worst. And it drives me fucking crazy because it's like, you think you're a rebel? You think you're a fucking rebel? And then you look at me like I'm a fucking dirty. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It yeah. Absolutely crazy. And then most of my rides and this, Gord, this might surprise you. Almost 100% of my good rides in trucks are with guys who are just fully like they drive for JB Hunt. They're just guys who don't give a fuck. They're not owner ops. And oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear it. And those, those are, most are of the mine guys. Too. Those are the guys in polo shirts. They're Mexicans. They work mm-hmm. for a cartel part time, but they go home to their families driving F one fifty, and they're normal nine to five fucking. I mean, nine to five type men who are slightly criminal, have done meth a lot but are a little <laughs> bit out of that life. But they're not presenting as rebels because the presenting as what? rebel guy is always going to tell you, fuck you. And that is, that's just an experience that blew my mind, but it is really, really true. And I'm just going to say a little fuck you to those guys who think they're rebels, but like <laughs> other people- Hey, are like I, can't I can't disagree. I can't disagree. I used to I, go to, I used to go to little country bars when I was hitchhiking sometimes. And the amount of times it's it's been more than a few times where they're playing the uh, the David Allen Coe song, you know. Absolutely. Oh, I was yep. I was thumbing from Montgomery, and the mm-hmm. same guys who know all the words to those songs, they would they would they would be throwing beer bottles at me, telling yep. me, you know, talking all this shit, and it was kind of funny to observe that. Uh, you know, I don't know. It, not to say not to say that there aren't still good old true. American outlaw types who, who get I agree. it. Yeah. They are yeah. they are few and far between these days, and it breaks my heart because that's that's a, a major facet of American highway culture that mm-hmm. really is it's it, to me it's as important as the Statue of Liberty and the Golden Gate Bridge is having a population of men who are who are real ones like that. And Fuck they, and yeah! Fuck yeah! They don't, <laughs> yes. they don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I never I don't think I ever had the experience of James of like sort of like you know halftime cartel dudes, but but like most of the I, most if not all the truckers that ever picked me up, yeah, they drove for big companies, and they were like, you know what, I'm not supposed to do this, but I don't give a damn. And uh, uh, you know the 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 I think the last the last trucker that picked that I can remember getting a ride with drove for Covenant. You know, like they have the big Bible quotes on the back of the thing, mm-hmm. and she was like, oh, I'm gonna get in so much trouble for this, but whatever. Um, and, uh, hilariously, she couldn't read a map. This was one of the things that blew my <laughs> mind. Uh, we're going to Oklahoma city from like Southern Missouri. And she pulls out this gigantic map and she's trying to read it while driving down the highway, of course. And she's like, Oh, we're going to be coming in from here. She points to the Southwest corner of Oklahoma city. She's like, we're coming in from here. And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure we're coming in from the Northeast corner. She's like, Nope, Nope, Nope. Coming in from here. And we were driving through Tulsa, you know, it's like very obvious. We're coming from, from the Northeast. Very, very funny. But uh, God bless her. Thank you for the ride. Uh, you know, I don't remember your name, but um, it was much appreciated. Hope you didn't get fired for that. <laughs> I will really tell you guys, it, it might be a depressing fact, but, you know, I, it, by the sounds of it, I traveled a little bit more recently than, than any of you guys might have, just by virtue of being younger. I've, I've hitchhiked. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I went coast to coast in this country. 
certainly well well over 125 or more thousand miles of hitchhiking. I can count the number of rides I got with truckers on maybe two hands in all in thousands of hitchhiking rides. Um, yeah, and they were always owner ops or very very religious company drivers who didn't give a damn and wanted to give me a yeah. Bible. Um, but but that the the truck the truck driving hitchhiking culture in this country. Uh, I, I would say by now, because even it's been about five years since I really was traveling hard. Um, I don't even know if it exists anymore at all, to be honest, except in just spurts and, and, and shoots here and there by accident, you know, uh, of, I don't know. And that, and that's sad to me. Yeah. That's sad. To me. The, the thing I, I do, I don't know if I attract this person or it's just luck, but like, a shockingly high percentage of people of truckers I've ridden with are self-described criminals. Um, and like that, I mean, Gord, you, I mean, you obviously know way more about this than I do. I know about it via hitchhiking, via hanging out in country bars. Um, and like, this is a thing we can talk about too. Like I, I don't travel anymore in that sense, but I live six to eight months out of my year, out of my year, like, out of a truck driving around myself, you know? And so it's like, I've never felt like I left road life in a certain way. Like, um, and it's very much incorporated into my work and all that stuff. Um, and like, I like criminals. Uh, I, I, I enjoy, I like the fun of it. You know, I like hearing about like what the Juarez cartel did in 2007, you know, and like why he left that thing and he went to the other guy. Like, I love that stuff. Um, but like, I don't think this is true in Canada, but there's just a ton of people who are like, I'm doing this on the spare time from the time where I beat people up with baseball bats for not paying their drug debts. And those guys will pick you up. And it's a real, it's a calculus. And like, it's a calculus that I decided I was willing to make. Um, but just some of the stories that they tell, you're like, oh, this isn't, this isn't better than the guy who hated me necessarily. Like I've had like people like describe really vividly, like raping men for like drug debts yeah. and stuff, like while you're in their truck and you're like, Oh, okay. Like, let's get to Muskogee as soon as possible. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I was going to mention know. the sexual propositions are also, you know, constantly happened. Yeah. I've that. never been sexually propositioned. I've had are people. I've never been sexually propositioned. That's crazy. I, I don't know what you're not I'm hitchhiking in Michigan. <laughs> I don't know what I'm giving off. Mich- like when I was in Michigan, just I like n- a number of. I mean, I, granted, I again, I usually hitchhiked with with a, a you know whatever woman I was dating at the time. But even sometimes with men that I'd be hitchhiking with, like for whatever reason, the state of Michigan has got some real creeps. Sorry, guy. I mean, I no no <laughs> no offense to the state of Michigan, but you got y'all got to get your creep creep situation figured out. I I, get, I, yeah. I don't like okay so on the criminal thing there, there's a trend with some of the larger carriers especially you know the JB Hunts and the Covenants of the world of they will make presentations at prisons like for guys that are like on their way out their sentences are coming to an end and the state will invite employers whatever few employers are still around which will, you know, hire convicted felons. And a lot of trucking companies do that because, well, easy place to get people that will work for cheap, right? And, you know, if you're a felon and you haven't got many options, 
Hey, trucking, you can get around the country. You know, you've just spent all this time locked up. You want to like be outside and see the world. Why wouldn't you be a trucker? Like it makes total sense. Sure. Um, I, I don't know. I've never bumped into anyone that's like an active or admitted to me as such. Um, but I had this interesting experience one time when I was in New Zealand. So I drove logging trucks in New Zealand well, like 20 years ago. And I, everyone talks in the forestry radio. Y'all got to pass each other on these skinny little roads and talk to the loading gangs. And there was this dude on the radio called Crash. And that was his nickname. Everybody down under, everybody has a nickname, whether you're a trucker or not. Like just regular working class dudes all have nicknames down under New Zealand, Australia. It doesn't matter. So anyway, this Crash guy, he hears me on the radio and I'm like the only foreigner. Like I'm like, there's, there's no, I shouldn't say there's me and one other dude from South Africa are the only two guys in the entire New Zealand logging truck industry who are not homeboys. Right. And so I kept hearing about this guy named crash. And one day I met up with him at a loading site out in the woods. So I'm waiting behind this one guy to get loaded and then crash pulls up behind me. And uh, I, you know, we're standing around and, he says, oh, hey, he introduces himself. Hi, I'm Crash. Nice to meet you, Gordon. I've heard you on the radio a lot, you know. And, oh, hi, nice to meet you. And I says, why do they call you Crash? And he goes, well, you know, when I first got into logging, I, I, I crashed a truck right away. And I said, well, did you like, did you not, were you not trained well enough? He says, well, no, when I got out, they sent me to a polytech and I got my license and I went trucking. And I said, got out from where? He says, oh, I did 10 years inside, bro. He was a Maori fellow, you know, and they all call each other bro, and that's whatever. Okay. Uh, do you mind me if I ask why you were inside? And he says, oh, yeah, I killed some cunt. <laughs> what? <laughs> he says, yeah, 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 I was, I was mongrel mob. They told me to kill some cunt, so I killed him. <laughs> I did 10 years. And it was like the most matter of fact, like, hey, how's it going? The weather's beautiful outside. Like he literally had no filter, didn't care. Just like I'm a total stranger from another country. And he just like told me he murdered someone like it was no big deal. I, I don't know how this ties into like trucking and hitchhiking and criminality, but like it was just the most bizarre thing I ever heard. Yeah. Yeah, my my jujitsu teacher is like that. My jujitsu teacher came out of gang life in Australia, and he's always like, like it's always the same thing. Like he he'll like, I shouldn't be saying this, but he like came into the gym the other day, and he was like, yeah, I almost killed some cunt. Like like literally the same phrasing. They always use that word, and I was like, who? And he was like, oh, my neighbor. And I was like, I just didn't ask any questions. I was just like, let's let's trade, like whatever. Um, but I think I think that's part of like in a weird way, like that society is less brutal. And like, you don't like, you don't go down for your whole life for that. And so like, they're a little more casual. It, that's my, that's my like weird sociological read about it is like, if you go down for 10 years for killing someone, like it's, you don't talk about it in this way that we Americans are used to talking about that. I don't know if that's true. Now we're off topic, but that's my take. So, well, I was, I was going to note one of the one of my other favorite um, regular uh, hitchhiking ride sort of demographics that you know people who'd pick me up um, 
basically uh, like um, you could, you know, you could time it, you know, like it's been two weeks since I've gotten picked up. It was, it was juggalos. I would oh, regularly get, yeah. get, I mean, the, the juggalo, the juggalo people, man, they were always, they were always kind to us. And um, got to say, shout out to the juggalos and, you know, regu- also regularly involved in some amount of criminality, you know, a lot of sort of connections with drugs, but really some of the most generous and kind hearted people that I spent time with over those years, uh, they were really into the insane clown posse. It's, you know, well, I, I don't know what it's all about, but talk, God bless them. You want to talk about like travel and like the anthropology of travel and, and looking for tribes. And I have to give it to the jugglos. They've got an intense sense of, of family that does family, really work yeah. for them. And I, I'll, I'll also comment that I remember uh, years ago, I got stuck in Yuba City, California, which is a shithole if you've ever been. I was and just I there. All day I was stuck in the heat and I slept out. And the next day I was stuck in the heat all day. And I finally started walking. And finally, some little van, you know, pulls up a mile down the road. And I, I'm running and running and running to get up with them, you know. And I get in there. It's a bunch of juggalos. And they, they stick me in the back with the dogs and everything and bring me all the way out to Mendocino. And uh, they were gas jugging. So for those listeners who aren't familiar, or if you guys don't know, these guys, the way that they got around was they had a five gallon gas jug, always a five gallon, never a one gallon. And they would go to gas stations and say, you know, to random strangers, hey, I'm out of gas, you know, could you spare a little bit so that we could get down the road? And uh, this one kid was so into it in the van while we're going down the road, he's getting a stick and poke tattoo right over his heart of the juggalo hatchet man logo but instead of having a hatchet he's got a uh he's got a gas can yeah you know and they, and they had these guys had like uh like logos of gas stations tattooed on them and i was like oh i you know maybe i'd get a flying j tattoo you know just because i love it so much i never did but can i add know, an anecdote guys. to that andy just to follow yeah. this this is awesome this is a really this is really great um culture stuff so during the freedom convoy in Canada, um, you know, all the truckers descend on Ottawa and a few other places along the border. And it was really cold, right? So it's the end of January, beginning of February. It's like minus 20, minus 30 out every day. So a lot of guys were either they're idling their engines or they had uh, APUs, which also ran on diesel or bunk heaters. So they're using fuel. So a lot of people who supported the convoy would come down and bring them diesel, right? So they had all these right. jerry cans. And the cops started busting people like in, to try and intercept the jerry cans. And so what other supporters would do is they would show up with empty jerry cans and they would just walk around downtown Ottawa carrying a bunch of empty jerry cans in hopes to like get the cops to come after them. And like all of a sudden, the jerry can became this symbol of resistance against the city of Ottawa, the Trudeau regime, the whole vaccine mandates, the whole nine yards through just carrying jerry cans it was awesome so uh, I just, uh, another note as a host so we're now like an hour and 45 minutes into this so i want to ask you guys two things um I, I don't i'm not saying we need to wind it down like i'm happy to keep going but uh joseph mentioned something in the chat about everyone sharing uh, uh an interesting traveling story that's germane to this uh however long it is i don't care 
but I also want to like, I mean, obviously the listeners and all of us are going to derive our own meaning from this, but like, maybe you could share how your experiences doing this, your interactions with these cultures, and then the sort of time and distance from it, because like Andy, you're not doing it anymore. You're in Messina. I have two kids. I'm married. I'm not going nowhere. I mean, I still drive truck, but it's only locally. You know, James is doing James thing. Joseph's in university getting his PhD. Like we're obviously not in that life anymore. However, it's informed who we are as men, who we are as like people in the world and what we're doing now. So like, maybe like, uh, another cool story. And then like, what does this all mean for you in the distance from your time being a traveler of the unconventional variety? If, if you guys don't mind, I'll, I'll jump right on that because it's extremely germane to where I'm at in my life right now. Uh, you know, my military contract is just about to end. I just turned 29 years old and, you know, uh, my the, my only real job I've ever had was the military. And, you know, even with that, they had me moving so many times. I've still basically been living out of either a backpack or a sea bag for over a decade. And um, now I'm asking myself, what am I going to do now? You know, I'm going to get out of the service. And I keep thinking, well, I'm about to be 30. There's a lot of pressure to kind of settle down and, and have a pretty clear direction. But I, I have to tell you that I, uh, I don't know that I'm going to do that. I, I sort of feel called to the, to the uh, project of continuing to travel and, and not making my travel be some weird chapter of my life that's just sort of a dead end or, or a, 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 an oddity, a biographical note, but something that's arcing towards something meaningful. I'm looking for a denouement in all the effort and all the years and all the time and all the troubles that I went through, I want it to mean something and to be continuous into life. And, and I just keep thinking about trying to build that tribe, you know, of, of really like extra familial blood type relations with people where when you look somebody in the eye and you tell them, Hey, you're my brother, they, they say it back to you and they mean it. And it is ride or die for life. And you're on the move together and you're building something. You're, you're creating a novel anthropology, something that people can move towards that's functional and wholesome. I find a lot of the journey is spiritual for me. You know, a, a lot of it at the end of it is, is remembering love and remembering a, a, a refusal to worry. Because so much of settled life is rooted in worry and fear. And to just say, I don't care. It, maybe it's the anarchist in me, the rebel in me. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to worry about where I'm going to be when I'm 75. I'm not going to worry about how I'm going to pay my mortgage. I'm not going to worry about where I'm going to be in a year. You know, um, I see a lot of former travelers give up on that mindset and they wind up drinking themselves to death. They wind up getting themselves into depressive situations. And I just can't see myself going that route. So I don't know what that looks like, but I'm thinking about it every single day, you know. Um, to try to get people together and, and get that sense of tribe, that sense of family and community with like-minded people, you know, uh, and to do it in a way where we can we can have children and we can have a multi-generational effort uh, that's spiritually guided and, and that keeps us moving, moving down the trail um, and free of all that that dark stuff, you know. Yeah, I that's interesting that that speaks a lot to sort of 
I'm older than you. It speaks a lot to sort of some of the conflict I've had. I, I mean, to some degree, I continue to drink too much and to kind of like resent my life, like as I've gotten older, but in a positive way, like I, I didn't really stop traveling. Like I still think of my tribe as road people. Like I, um, I'm lucky enough. I have a girlfriend who, I mean, almost to our detriment, if I say like, load up, we're going to Montana. She doesn't ask when we're coming back. Like, and, and that's a, that's a really lucky thing. Like to some degree as a man, that's a really lucky thing to have a woman like that. Um, and we've done that for, we've been together now on and off for five years and, and we've done that for a really long time and it's part of our life. And, you know, like I've got on the plate, like I'm going back to Africa soon, like, and like, otherwise I just sold a book and that book would not have happened if I didn't just like pull up stakes and to some degree, like spend, you know, parts of the last three years, like traveling through this one random region of North of California, I care a lot about. And, and like, I guess going to your point, like my tribe or whatever, like I'm not a rancher. I'm not a, I wasn't in the military, but the people I report on who are often very rough people, they understand me as road person. And they understand now when I'm in that bar, like I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be like agro masculine, whatever, but I'm hard and have lived because of the road stuff. And like that comes across and there's no, I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to say anything. They, they get it. Um, and it it is a little bit that David Allen Coe thing you're saying, like it is a little bit like that American heritage stuff. Um, it is a little bit like my high low thing. I work in very elite systems for my living. And then I also do this other thing that we can all relate to. And like, uh, as I've gotten older, somehow those two things no longer feel in conflict. They felt very much in conflict before. That's a really, like, if you're just being objective about it, it's a really delicious, great way to be able to live a life. Like it, it's actually very exciting and cool. Um, and I do feel very lucky about that. Um, I'm trying to buy a house right now, actually. I'm trying, and to everybody's point, I'm not. Uh, Joey had to step away for a second. I'm not sure, but I'm. I know Andy, you'll get this. Famously, the most fame, like the most friendly train hopper town in the world, is Dunsmuir, California, and it's yeah. also like where I'm reporting my book from. Um, and so there's something like completely full circle. Like I have this book contract now that like allows me to buy a house, but the house is in Dunsmuir, the greatest train hopping town in the world. And you're like, okay, this all kind of came together. Um, and it's just like so beautiful and to some degree spiritual and all of that stuff. Um, and so you, you wind up with stuff like that and you take sock and you're like, oh, like as difficult as this lifestyle is, and I can I continue to actually think my lifestyle is pretty difficult, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. Like, I also get opportunities like that that are amazing, you know. And like, I've never in my life had a fucking W two job, you know. Yeah. Um, and like, I've never had all good. A boss. All good things are difficult, James. All good things are difficult. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And like, it's crazy to be hanging on in the elite writer thing in the middle class. And to have never had a boss, you know, um, that's a crazy lucky thing. And like, I can say that. So that rules. So, and that came exclusively from the road. Right. Yeah. Right. I, so uh, hopefully my bandwidth is okay. My, my hotspot just died, but it should be all right. Um, I mean, I feel like I have a pretty uh, sort of peculiar 
take on all this stuff, which is like, by the time, but by, by the end of my time in kind of traveling world, I'd become so sort of frustrated with certain types of, uh, you know, patterns of behavior among other people and, and you know, kinds of like um, attitudes and behaviors that were, um, that were encouraged on account of it being like the way that we do things, quote unquote, you know, um, I, I was so frustrated with uh yeah i don't know there's a certain type of anti-intellectualism that floats around in those circles there's a, a certain kind of like um i don't know like a a hostility to normal human things that i kept coming into contact with that bothered me a lot and really you know one of the things that really that really uh did it for me was uh i, I just i encountered so much drug abuse and then like you know a couple a couple really beautiful souls died of overdoses and so I kind of, I kind of got spit out of it with this feeling that it was really important for me to focus less on like finding a group of people that I really wanted to spend time with and instead to just doggedly and aggressively pursue the question of how to live. So it ended up making me something I don't I wouldn't say like an individualist really but like I had to devote I I I came out of it feeling like I had to devote a lot of attention to like my own living um and then think about human life generally, right? I mean, basically, it, it like my my time in the world of traveling made me philosophical <laughs> in a way that I had only been kind of like, you know, uh, uh, had glimmerings of it before. But like, really, there was a kind of crisis that happened where it, it, it occurred to me that like it was of the utmost importance that I think about life and I think about it very, very seriously. So um, that's basically been my task uh, for the last, you know, 10 years or so is just desperately thinking about human life and trying to make sense of it and trying to figure out what you know what a good human life is and how to lead one and and i, 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 I to that effect i mean i've been trying to i've been trying to find those things from my time traveling that are recoverable and that are generative and that are that contribute to good you know human living right like i do think that the, the those senses of spontaneity and freedom are essential um and having and, and and that feeling of like owning the things that you do, right? Like feeling like, you know, when the thing about the thing about doing all this stuff is like when you like even even if it's a terrible hitchhiking day, let's say, you know, I remember you know, many years ago, I, I was when, when, when the, the last train I ever rode, I was trying to catch a train in Baldwin, Florida and ride it back to New Orleans, but I couldn't catch it in Baldwin. I couldn't catch it in Tallahassee. And so I had to walk from Tallahassee, Florida, all the way to Chattahoochee. It's like, you know, a whole full day of walking. But like, I did that walking. That walking was mine, right? Yeah. It was like, nobody could do it for me. You know, you couldn't institutionalize it. I couldn't buy it from, you know, you know what I mean? Like every single, every single, single thing that you do when you're standing out there under the sun and it's just you and the world and like whatever's going to happen is yours. And you are like, you like that feeling of like ownership over your activity is so important. And I, you know, I, I've spent, you know, the last couple of years around uh, college undergraduates, right? So I was at the University of Chicago for a couple of years and my wife and I supervised University of Chicago undergraduates here at uh, where I'm at Tulane University. Um, I will be teaching them. I've been TAing them. And, and one of the things that has, has been really boggling my mind about college undergraduates, uh, you know, I, 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 of course, you know, I, made this this very abortive attempt to like I said earlier I had this full scholarship I just dropped out I don't I'd never really understood college until I came back at it in my, in my mid-20s but these college undergraduates like so many of them feel like 
they have no control at all over their lives and that they they have to slide along this rail that's been laid for them by their parents and by society capital s whatever that is and by you know all these other people outside of them and they they have basically have like no feeling for their own agency um and i'm not even sure that they think that a feeling for one agency is important or good so um i think that's really bad i think that i think that having um having a feeling for your own agency is like a human necessity and that um the loss of it in, in whatever sort of bizarre uh, sort of stage of modernity we currently live in is like a, is a, is a human crisis. Um, and I'm trying to do whatever I can to get people to feel that again and to, and to, and to want to feel that again and to, and to grab onto their lives. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I still, I still, I, I remain skeptical of tribes. Um, my tribe is that of all the thoughtful people, I guess. Um, wherever they might be. Um, always happy to talk to anybody who's willing to have a good conversation about stuff, you know, and, uh, but uh, yeah, I, 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 th I think really it's about, you know, locating those, 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 um, those, you know, beautiful, nourishing, recoverable things from, from this kind of world of activity and, and just trying to, trying to hold on to it forever. Um, we should tell some stories though. I feel like we've been really, it's, it's been weird and really, really slim on stories and that's one of the great things about the stuff is you get a lot of good stories so uh somebody somebody tell something oh i got oh, plenty I'll, I'll, I'll go i, I think yeah I'll go. go yeah yeah gord give it to us right so in 2002 i hitchhiked to newfoundland um purely because i hadn't been to newfoundland yet i hadn't got a trucking trip out there and i just wanted to go and it, it, i was thinking ahead to when i was gonna go down under to new zealand and i thought to myself before i go to some other small rock out in the middle of the ocean i should visit the one that belongs to my own home country so I hitchhiked to Newfoundland. I have some really awesome experiences. I got picked up by this like tree planter guy who was working in Northern Ontario. He took me to his parents' house in Cornerbrook and I woke up one morning on their couch and his dad's playing guitar and his mom is cooking Newfoundland steaks. And they pretended like I was just a nephew. Like I was just like, it was just perfectly normal for some weirdo from Ontario to show up on their couch. And I had this excellent time in Newfoundland. And I get this email from my cousin, Samantha, who lived in San Francisco. And she says to me, when are you going to New Zealand? And I said, well, I think I'm flying out of Vancouver in September sometime. And she said, September. And I said, yeah, mid-September. And she says, well, why don't you come to visit me in San Francisco? Like come down a few weeks beforehand. I want to take you to this party in nevada have you ever heard of burning man and i'm like no i've never heard of burning man so i start looking it up and you know this is 2002 before it was like too widely well known and i thought to myself all right this this looks interesting so i get home from newfoundland i uh make my way out to vancouver and i, I fly down to san francisco and my cousin takes me to Burning Man with one of my other cousins. 
I'd never been there before. I'd never been part of like, you know, rave culture. I was sort of like, you know, heavy metal, punk rock, angry young man, working all the time, divorced home, yada, 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 all the social dysfunction that, you know, lends itself to young dudes wanting to like get away and do their own thing. So I, I go to Burning Man and I, I've never done MDMA before. And one of my cousin's friends is this well-connected dude with the pharmaceutical industry and knows chemists and whatever. And he says, here, have some of this. And he gives me a capsule of MDMA and I've never, ever, ever done MDMA before. And like, I just, I just went fucking bonkers crazy. Like this is the best thing ever. And there's a, uh, there's this camp at Burning Man called, uh, uh, death guild and they recreate the thunderdome from the third mad max movie they build it and it's got like these bungee cord things hanging from the ceiling and they tie people up and like you beat each other with nerf bats and shit and all the people attending to it are all dressed in costume uh one side of the dome has got like a dj booth and there's like speakers hanging up inside it and they're playing heavy metal and punk rock it's like it's like crust punk mecca like, if there's anything any crust punk would ever want to do, it's go to Burning Man and, like, duke it out in a literal recreation of Thunderdome, right? So I climb up on the side of it, because just like in the movie, there's, like, spectators, and everyone's... They've got, like, this industrial steel fucking dome they build out there, and I'm sitting on it, and I am just flying on MDMA. Like, I've never done it before, and... Ace of Spades by Motorhead comes on and these guys are in there and they're beating each other with Nerf bats. And I'm sitting here and I look to the person next to me and it's like this 14 year old girl. And for whatever reason, my brain turned on and I look over at her and I'm like, you seem a bit young to be here. And she says, Oh no, 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 you know, it's cool. My parents are from San Francisco. This is like my third burning man. You know, this is 2002. I'm like, oh, wow, your parents must be really cool. And she says, actually, yeah, they are. They worked on Jell-O Biafra's mayoral campaign. <laughs> they, like, tried to help get Jell-O elected to San Francisco. So, like, this, like, daughter of the OG crust punks is sitting next to me. I'm listening to Motorhead while these, like, people LARPing as Mad Max are hosting anybody that wants to fight in Thunderdome. And... I, I don't know what this has to do with traveling, but like <laughs> I was in transit going to New Zealand and I just had this experience and, and, and part of the deal with traveling is like you get opened up to like new people, new stuff, new experiences, people you've never met. And like Burning Man is this weird place where like you could run into like executives from Google, you could run into crust punks weird art fags, whatever. Like you just, it, it takes all kinds and it's just a super crazy environment. And I'm this like fairly, maybe not quite straight edge, but like regular working class guy from Southern Ontario. That's never really done anything. And here I am in this like bacchanalian drug rave art freak out in the middle of the desert whilst I'm on my way to go to New Zealand and drive logging trucks just for the sh shits and giggles of it. Like the whole thing, 
to this day. Every time I hear Ace of Spades by Motorhead on the radio or something, like I just I immediately come back to this experience. <laughs> and I just I just I have to wonder like when you're traveling, when you're doing this thing, like you have these transcendental experiences come to you. And I've had plenty of them, like with or without drugs, like driving across the outback in Australia. Um, hitchhikers I've picked up in Canada, like a couple of times I've picked up hitchhikers in Canada and it'll be this, you know, it'll be the summer or winter. And that's when like Northern lights normally happen. And like, I'll be like, Oh, Hey, look, it's midnight. Let's pull over and watch the Northern lights. And I'll, I'll stop the truck and we all get out and like, Oh, wow. Northern lights. Cool. Then get back in the truck and keep going. And like, it's, there's just, there's just something to the human experience involved with movement, meeting new people, having these different new experiences. And I just wonder with like all of the technological imperialism we're going up, we're undergoing, we're like, our lives are all mediated by this. And like, that's not to say that it's all bad. I mean, obviously we're having this discussion, but like, if everyone's brains are fried by Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and like the only people we understand of as travelers is like illegal immigrants coming over the border or something like where does this go under this current like technological paradigm? I mean, it's a, it's a strange question to try and wrap the shell up with. Cause like, you know, it begets something else and we're trying to stop, but I don't know. Maybe I'm ranting too much. I'm sorry. Never apologize, Gord. No. <laughs> Great. Joey, you go. You you were the one who suggested telling stories. Yeah, sure. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, one of the bummers about riding freight trains is that you don't get a lot of good stories out of it, really, because you don't, you know, you, you don't often interact with other people. You do get, like, lovely, beautiful rides, right? Like, um, That's a good point. That's a, that is a really good point. Yeah, that's yeah, very it's, true. It's a, you're so you're, it's a, it's very solitary. It's very I mean, and, and you can't talk a lot because the train's so loud. So it's not like you can have really good conversations or whatever. Um, you can read good books, uh, which I certainly did much of the time. But um, I'll share. I guess I'll I'll just share a couple of uh, a couple of impressions from some of my favorite rides, and then I've got a great hitchhiking story. So one of my favorite rides, um, and this one is a is a favorite because I felt like I had to really wrench it from the jaws of impossibility. I was in California, terrible place. And I was trying to leave it as you hey should. now hey and, now um, hey now <laughs> I, know. I was I was hitting the listen hitting the bud. James Cook button. Um, <laughs> uh, but so I, I had I was in I was in the Bay Area I, I caught uh, this this ridiculous train I, I'd been in San Jose for a couple of days and then uh, trying to catch a train didn't work jumped on one random thing actually hopped in the back unit of this coal train um, this empty coal train and it took us down to uh, uh, not Santa Cruz. God, what's the name of that weird? There's like a weird town that's kind of between San, San Jose, San Luis you know Obispo, San Luis Obispo. You took it, wasn't, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a Bisbo because I, I rode a train to Obispo later, actually on the same on the same route. It was uh, Somethingville. Anyway, popped off in the middle of nowhere. Oh, Gardnerville. I can look it up on a map, but. Uh, yeah, okay. got off, hitchhiked down to San Luis Obispo, rode a train out of San Luis Obispo down into uh, the Van Nuys yard in Los Angeles, and then spent like five Bro, days in L.A. This dude just what? took my story. He, you just oh. took my story. 
no, no, is, it's, it's okay. Because, there's, there's, but, but, there's more to you it. have to no, no, but you have to explain to the people because this is so what he did, and this is super rare. This is not normal. So there's one route that runs along. Mostly, most of the trains that run on this route are fucking Amtrak. But there's one yeah. route that runs through Carpinteria, through Santa Barbara, and you're fucking on the coast. And if you want to learn, it dangles over the coastline. Yeah, you are. I I rode it in a boxcar and like in the middle of the night and there's i've never been to california and on the one side there's oil there's oil wells and it's like blasted hellscape industry and on the other side it's the most beautiful expensive homes in the entire world and you can literally hear like when you side when you pull over to let another train go uh you can but you do constantly because it's all amtrak's right yeah yeah yeah. and it's all like it's all junk that rides that 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 runs on that on that route you can hear the waves crashing and there's coyote brush and there's like birds singing and it is though you're going over sea cliffs it is the most insane ride ever and that was my intro that was the first time i went to la and like my head exploded that's why it's amazing right now i was just like oh okay this is california i accept like this rule oh that's crazy because my experience was that was the first time i was in los angeles and i hated it so much um but no like the ride is really lovely so you know you get off a van nice and then i had to ride the um subway all the way across it well actually i almost died that night because a huge monsoon rainstorm came in and my friend and i ducked into the only cover that we could find which was in one of those like uh it's like a like a they have those big washes you know like the big concrete things all the all the rain goes in so we go down into there and then so much rain falls it washes a bunch of tumbleweeds and the tumbleweeds press down on this metal grate and nearly trap us inside of this thing and all this water is rising up it was crazy like uh it was we made a really dumb thing and like had we not woken up from the sound the sound of roaring water like maybe like 20 minutes later we would have been trapped in there and probably would have died but um so we get out of that ride the subway uh and get out get out all the way to riverside which is where um we'd heard that there's a there's this little spot where trains as they're heading out of los angeles will stop on their way through riverside and they can go we end up in riverside for five days just sitting there <laughs> and you can't do any i mean there's nothing you can do like there's no highway you can go to, to to hitchhike at Riverside. You're just like in the middle of LA sprawl. And then finally, after on the fifth day, we were like, we're in like, you know, abandon all hope is long behind. We like, we're, we're destitute, you know, spiritually destitute. This train is flying past us again. And then it suddenly stops super fast. We run as fast as possible, jump on this thing. And, uh, and it's like these, it's these short, like, I think they're like 46 foot, uh, 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 inter- intermodal cars are the shorter ones, and the only thing 43s. you can get underneath yeah. are they 43s? Is that what it is? I think it's 53, 48, 43. Am I crazy? 52, and then there's, and then, 52, and then there's 40s, and then there's 40s. Maybe it was a 40, it's been a yeah. long time, but regardless, it was one of the short, stumpy ones. So there's nothing to ride under except for these metal grates you can kind of shimmy beneath. And right. so, we're, we're sitting under these metal grates. We're bl- and then the thing takes off as soon as we get on this thing. It stops for maybe like 20 seconds, blasts out of Los Angeles, and I immediately fall asleep. I w- the next thing I, I see when I wake up are the are the, the blinking lights from the um, uh, windmills as you're heading out of L.A. And then yeah, just a sky full crazy. of stars. Oh, that's when so, you know you're free when you yeah, see them. That's when you know I love like, that ride. Exactly. <laughs> I love that ride was, so much. It was such a sign of freedom to just be like, I know I'm getting out of this thing. Um, but the, the real be my funeral procession. <laughs> there you go the, the the real treat of that ride though is that that big rainstorm that had caught us in los angeles 
continued all the way through Arizona. So we're riding to Tucson and it's the lushest landscape imaginable because this huge rain has just come in through the desert. And on my way, you know, when I first time I came through Arizona on the way out to California on the train, it was so barren and, and gray and brown. And now it was just like the greenest landscape you could possibly imagine. It was just so beautiful and inviting. So uh, that's, that's, I'll, I'll leave it. Well, I'll say that my other favorite train ride was from Island Pond, Vermont to Lewiston, Maine. It's just this little dinky junk route yeah. that yeah. if you go the other way, it takes you into Canada. This is how a lot of people I know yeah. used to travel into Canada. But um, right. that ride down from Island Pond, Island Pond had one of my favorite diners in, in Vermont, which is a, a state of great diners. Uh, they made a fantastic omelet. Um, it's just like this lovely little slow train ride up in, up in Vermont and Maine. Um, but uh, uh Favorite hitchhiking story, bar none. I was trying to go up to Indianapolis. So the, the train yard in Avon, Indiana was a regular catch-out spot for me. I would regularly go up to Buffalo, which is where I had I spent a long time up in Buffalo, New York, had a bunch of friends up there. So I was I was uh, hitch, hitchhiking with a buddy. We we're walking north of Bloomington on the side of the highway going up to Indianapolis. Cop stops us and immediately starts giving us the whole playbook. Like, what are you boys doing? You know, you can't walk on the road. You, you can walk on the road. They just like to tell you that taking our IDs, go sit in the car for 20 minutes. And after we'd been there for like 15 minutes, getting harangued by this cop, this golden GMC Suburban or whatever, or like, you know, this big old, this big old SUV pulls off in front of the cops, backs up and stops. And a priest gets out, this big fat priest guy, collar and everything. And he just walks up to the cop and he says, he says, I'll take it from here. And the cop's like <laughs> looking at, you know, he's, he's got like his like, you know, his citation book. And he's, he's like, that is awesome. Serious? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I got him. And so we get in the car with this priest. His name's Father Bernie. Uh, sorry, I, you know, I don't I think he's probably longer tired by now. I, I, I could not possibly throw this man under the bus. It, it would be impossible at this point. But Father Bernie drives us up to Avon, spends the entire time telling us about his, his life before he became a priest. Uh, he was a bartender. He said he especially loved bartending at the gay bars because he could flirt with all the guys and make more money. And he'd occasionally do a little bit of cocaine. And he really liked that, too. Um, and he he's talking to, you know, it's like a pretty long drive up to Indianapolis. At no point does he ever express any, like, regret about this previous life. And all he says is, well, I'm a priest now. Let me drive you past my house. And he takes us through the heart of Avon again. He says, you see that house over there? It's like this enormous, like, you know, three-story thing. He's like, paid for by the church. See this car? Paid for by the church. He drives <laughs> us to a Kentucky Fried Chicken and buys us this enormous bucket of chicken. He's like, paid for by, paid the, for church. by the church. And, and he, 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 ne <laughs> he never once expresses a sentiment of like, oh, and then like my heart changed. And, you know, I like, it's, it's, it really came off that he had, he had just found a better scam. <laughs> and that this was <laughs> this is what he did too. So he 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 dumps us off at that right at the right at the ketchup spot in the train yard with his bucket of, of, of fried chicken, and uh, is just like, all right, see you later, boys. Didn't he didn't proselytize a single time? This is a Catholic priest. Um, and uh, and I remember sitting there with my buddy eating this chicken, and my 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 buddy here with this extremely Jewish last name looks at me and he says, "Dude, we got to become priests." <laughs> okay so god bless you father bernie i hope you're doing all right uh man wow. what a what a what a ride that's wild yeah that's wild. <laughs> wow that's like the, the kind of characters you meet out there yeah. you know? I, mean, it's, I know it, it's, there's really, really nothing like it yeah jeez 
Andy, do you want to go? I, I like stepped over half of Joey's story. So no, yeah, I'll go. Like I've, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm down. I Well, Joey said something earlier that, that got me thinking about a particular story of mine. Um, because you were talking, Joey, about a- agency. And when we were talking about tribes and, and different things and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I just got to thinking about how experiencing radical agency the most agency you could possibly have will inevitably put you in situations where you have to completely succumb to your lack of agency. And it's almost a mystical paradox. And it's a lot of why I'm religious. It's a lot of why I'm a Christian. It's a lot of why I I think that there's a spiritual component to travel. And it makes me think of a particular day where my ex-girlfriend years ago had a job in Clark Fork, Idaho, some tiny little town middle of nowhere. And uh, this was one of the crazier days of my, my hitchhike. And I, I might even have to abridge it just a little because it's a, it was the longest day of my life easily. I wake up there one day and uh, I've been staying in, in with my with my ex in this in this little like bunkhouse where she was working on this big ranch. And I never talked to anybody at that ranch. I just stayed a few days to see her. And then one day I'm walking and this big old lady beckons me into the trailer and I'd been taking walks around this little town, wandering and looking at the river and, and going up in the woods and such. And she sits me down real nice and, uh, you know, pours me a cup of tea and uh, we get to talking. But finally she says, you know, I can tell that you're the product of intergenerational poverty. I said, Oh, uh, you can, can you? She said, yeah. People in this town, they think that you're going to burglarize their homes. And I'm not telling you that you have to leave. But, you know, you might want to consider what you're doing in your life at this time. And then I looked out the window and she, all of her nephews are sitting out there cleaning their shotguns on the back of the truck. And I could catch the drift that I was kind of getting run out of town. So I left and I was mad. And uh, the next day I, I was going to hitchhike down to Bozeman, Montana, where I had a bunch of friends who were at this, uh, this little farm that I was staying at before. And it's a long way from Clark Fork, Idaho to Bozeman. But I was so mad. I, I thought I'm going to try to do it in one day. And um, so what, whatever, I put my thumb up and I go down the road, I get a couple of rides, I get a couple of rides, nothing crazy. And then I get this ride that was particularly notable. It was a bunch of Native American kids, and uh, the, there was no room for me in the car. They were in an old Dodge Neon that was all rusted out, and it was there was so much weight from people in the car, like a clown car, that the vehicle was sagging down. So they rolled down the back window, and they said, hey, crawl in. I said, oh, all right, I guess I will. And then I'm laying on top of all these, these Navajo kids, or black, uh, some were Navajo, some were Blackfoot. And uh, I'm laying on top of them. They give me a beer. So I'm drinking a Natty Ice, laying on top of all these native kids. And they said, what tribe are you? And I get a wicked tan in the summertime. So I, I didn't know. I said, I, I don't know. I'm just, a, I'm just a white guy. And they all laughed. They said, you're lying. And then they, the, the one guy who was driving, he looked at me. He said, hey, you want to come to the powwow? I said, sure. <laughs> so 
I wound up going to the Western Tribes powwow in Lolo, Montana. And uh, it was a crazy time. I was spinning around and dancing and drums and everything. And uh, they did this weird dance where you took all the money out of your pockets and put it in a hat. And then they spun the hat around. And I I wound up leaving with more money than I came with. Uh, And they fed me, too. And so I'm all hyped up from this. And I'm just really feeling it. It kind of cheered me up after getting run out of Clark Fork. And then I hitchhiked further. And I make it to the interstate, uh, to I-90. And uh, what was it? There was, I got a couple of rides, a couple of rides, and then I made it to Butte, Montana. And no, wait a second. Hang on. The ride that took me to Butte was, oh, I can't remember it now. No, I made it to Butte, Montana. There's a truck stop there. And the sun's going down. I'm getting mad that I'm not going to make it to Bozeman. But I try anyway. So I'm standing in front of the door hitchhiking. And then uh, I got a sign up that says Bozeman. I'm sitting in front of the door of the truck stop trying to keep low profile so they don't kick me out of there, you know. And uh, then this car rolls up. This woman's driving. She's got big hair, big hair, smoking a cigarette. She's crying. Her makeup's all screwed up. It's an old white, like Cadillac, like from the 70s. And the license plate said, uh, what was it? Reich 88. And I was like, oh, wow. well, I kind of know that we got some white power people coming and uh, whatever. Well, the woman goes inside. She's wiping her makeup. I don't know what she was doing, but the man sat out there and he's smoking a cigarette. He's got the window down. He looks over at me. He's like, hey, what are you what are you doing? I said, hey, man, I'm just looking for a ride to Bozeman, you know, and he's like. Why are you begging? You're begging right here. Are you some kind of fucking loser? And I was like, no, man, I'm, I'm not asking for anything. I'm just, if there's an empty seat in the car going to Bozeman, I'm trying to get it. And he just started to froth at the mouth, telling me to get a job and all this stuff. And whatever, you deal with this stuff before. You know, it's, it was nothing new to me. But then he got out of the car. And he was drunk. I could tell he was drunk. He got out of the car and he started stepping up to me. And I was chilling. I was chilling. I stayed cool, calm and collected. I was not about to throw down with this guy. Um, and I knew that there's a lot of white power people up there who are like Christian identitarians. And they think that like, you know, the, 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 I don't know, like the, the holy race is the white race or whatever. So I thought I would try something with him. And I looked at him and he's screaming at me. He's an inch from my face telling me to get a job. I'm a piece of shit. And then he starts pushing me and he's, you know, he's trying to get me to fight him. And I said, listen, you know, if you're going to hit me right here on, on, on one side of my face, you can hit me on the other too. I, and I was going to really let, I was going to let him kick the shit out of me right there because I decided that that was the right way to deal with the situation. I knew there was no winning. I was right there. I mean, I, I they would have, I would have been arrested and I didn't want that. I had already had enough trouble. Then a trucker came through. He had heard the whole thing. He'd been sitting up, filling, filling up, up his rig. Big, huge guy, huge guy comes over, throws his arm around a guy and throws him against his car and says, leave the fucking guy alone. Right. Well, then he talks to me after and he says, you know, that's it's a cool thing you did that you you were going to let him hit you like that. And he gave me a Bible. He said, maybe you already know more about this than I do, but have this Bible or whatever. And I was all hyped up. 
but I was, I was like, man, the trucker's the man because I was about to get wrecked, you know? Well, then uh, I get up on the, the interstate and I stick my thumb up and uh, I get a ride from a woman and whatever. I hop right in the car. She's drinking out of a copper cup and I didn't think much of it. But, you know, people ask, what's the worst kind of ride that you ever get? Was it perverts or is it violent people? No, it's always been drunk drivers for me. Mm-hmm. And Good I could point. tell about three minutes into the ride, this woman was blackout drunk. And she told me, she said, I'm late. I'm late for a wedding. There's supposed to be a wedding. I'm late for the wedding. And I'm, oh, it's been three, four, five hours. I'm late for the wedding. I got to get up to the wedding. And I was like, all right, whatever. You know, I need to get out of this vehicle. Well, we start going up over the Great Divide and it got cold and it's there's snow on the road. And mind you, I never had driven a car really because I was always opposed to it. So I never had a license. I wasn't comfortable driving. Well, she's going on and on. She's got her cell phone out now. And she said, we got pet reindeer at the house. And she's trying to show me a Facebook slideshow of the damn reindeer on her phone while she's going down the road drunk. She's going 80. And she said, take the wheel. And I said, I'm not taking the wheel, lady. This ain't, this is my car. She said, take the wheel. And she, and I wasn't going to do it. But then she just was like, whatever. And she kept, kept pinning the throttle with her hands off the steering wheel. And we're going down those, those tough turns coming down I-90 over the Great Divide. And there's snow on the road. And we start going. Like we start fishtailing in the highway where there's other cars on the road. And so finally I grabbed the wheel and I tried to do something with it, but I'm so nervous that I started making us fishtail more. And it was a wonder that that vehicle corrected itself in time because I thought we were going to go off the road. Um, And then finally we pull up. I don't, we were in like Anaconda or something. I don't remember exactly where we were at, but it was so cold. I, I, I laid out in a field and I, that was one of the only times I thought I might actually freeze to death. Mm-hmm. And I, I walked into a, a gas station and I begged, I straight up begged the guy behind the counter. I said, man, I've had one hell of a day. You know, can I just sit in here? And he wasn't going to let me do it. And I said, please, you know, just have a, have a heart for me here because I, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's, you know, at that point it was probably 15 degrees outside. And, um, you know, I didn't have adequate gear for that. I wasn't prepared for that. Yeah. Um, so I sat with him all night. We just talked about, you know, his life and his divorce. I didn't get a wink of sleep, uh, but I made it to Bozeman in the morning with a guy from Belgium. Wow. Uh, and that, that day, I don't know what it was. That day just like added years to my life. And, and, and it was like a it felt like a penitential mm-hmm. experience, like a religious <laughs> experience. Like I, some part of me died doing doing days like that uh well, pun- punctuated or, by the or or you were or like something was awakened in you like some people haven't had that experience before yeah. you know what i mean like it's both yeah for it's, real. it's certainly both yeah, yeah. that's yeah. crazy man yeah yeah that powwow in the middle though that really yeah that really sends it over the edge dude that's that like kicked it yeah. off man that kicked this, it off i couldn't even believe that I, that was a whole that, hell crazy. i could probably tell a whole story just about that but but the fact that that was just my morning was like all yeah. right i'm going to the western tribes powwow and drinking uh, drinking natty daddies with some blackfoot teenagers you know <laughs> i thought that was man. super funny <laughs> this is killing me because like between the two of you like i had an idea of the story i was going to tell and now it's like 
like I, we've been to all these sim similar places we have these similar experiences now i want to bounce off of each of those uh so now i'm like sort of lost but that it's like one thing i just want to say like one thing that is so present in all of this is like it is a choice like it is a choice to have this lifestyle and like that feeling of like i have been through hell like i mean i think we've all had this experience like to some degree of like comparing the road life to the military and obviously andy you've compared the road life to the military in a way that like i can't ever relate to and never will be able to relate to but like you go through things that are hard and difficult and that have the potential to break you and that other people can't relate to um and i've always sort of thought of the road life as my military and to some degree i kind of regret yeah. not having been in the military um right. and oh yeah but like the difficulty about the road life and the thing, like I'm writing a novel about this stuff right now. And the thing that it really takes a leap to explain is like, yes, it is a choice. No, I did not have to do this stuff. Yes. I could have got a job, got a Greyhound ticket and got from Clark Fork to Bozeman and none of this shit would have happened. Right. But if it didn't happen, then no one would have lived that. And that actually matters. Like, and I'm sorry, I know it sounds self-aggrandizing, I know it sounds grandiose, I know it sounds self-justifying, but it fucking matters that there are still people who live that shit. And if they didn't live it, we as a country, as a people, as a world would be less rich. And like, so yeah. it does matter that you did that. And it matters that that guy was able to be like, you lived through that stuff. And I'm going to now find in the kindness of my heart to support you living that stuff. And like, that was always my experience with this shit. Uh, so I guess my stories will piggyback off that and a little bit off the technology stuff because I find these stories hopeful. But like, Joey, um, so you're riding at it when you're riding at a Colton, like eastbound on the IM, like uh, headed out of out of Los Angeles. Um, that's a great ride. And like those trains for people who don't know, you know, we all know this stuff. So we, we just assume that other people know it, too. But like those trains fucking fly. And oh, that's so fast. Great. Yeah, it's crazy. That, it's, it's a great 75? feeling. I think it's 75. Well, so so I actually I know for a fact what the speed is because I I was riding a unit. So I was oh, people don't know, uh, blah blah blah. <laughs> here's here's a little technical bullshit. But so the, yeah. these container cars, what we're talking about is we're trying to find container cars with spaces with flat surfaces in a little well where the container car is smaller than the well, and then you get down in that and you can ride safe. Right. Now, some of us idiots will ride in a small, in a car with a small container, but it's a big 53 foot well where the new ones have a lattice of I-beams and those I-beams are four to five inches wide and they go diagonally across the bottom of the well and they hold that car and there's no space there. So you're just sitting on that I-beam and that's called riding suicide. And when you ride suicide, like you take your life in your own hands, it's dangerous you i take my belt off and strap it to something whatever so, sometimes does, it, there's a little bit of a ledge you can sit on like i rode i rode one of those from memphis to nashville and there's just kind of on like a you know two and a half foot little little platform within the exposed i-beams that were real you sketchy. can do that you can do that but not out of colton because you have to be down in the well to hide yeah um so anyway long story short i was riding suicide out of colton and it was the middle of summer and so the night was the most amazing night. It's the same thing Joey just described, the blinking lights. 
the 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 windmills you go by the salt sky sea. full of stars yeah the salt yeah. and sea is incredible at that it yeah. smells like it smells horrible but you have these amazing like cool breezes in the hot night air it's incredible and then you wake up in arizona and it's the middle of july and you're gonna die um and like i seriously was losing my mind I, I i lost my mind so hard somewhere in arizona that i uh it broke into the unit, the train engine unit, and I stole the flares and I lit a cigarette with the flare because I just so badly needed a cigarette. Um, and then anyway, to the point of how fast they go, they go 72 because I was riding the unit the rest of the way. Right. Um, and classically, that's a dangerous ride to make because it goes completely along the border. And a lot of people cross and try to jump that train. And so there's body scanners all along there. There's a body scanner at Indio. There's body, you guys know, there's body scanner at Del Rio, Texas. There's body Yuma, scanner. Yeah. Yeah. Yuma, yeah. exactly. Yeah, there's body Yuma scanners. Wild. Yeah. All through there. Right. Yeah. Right. And I was like, fuck this. I don't believe that you can find me. Like, my theory was we have so much data in this world that you're not going to fucking get me. And I rode, I rode straight the fuck through those drinking water out of the thing, air conditioning, 72 miles an hour. It set it on the thing in the unit. And I got to El Paso, and you guys have probably ridden through El Paso. It's horrifying. Um, yeah, it's like so it's, scary. Yeah. It's, it's really, really scary. It's militarized fences, razor mm -hmm. wire, everything. And I'm a big aficionado. Shout out to the tap bar. Um, I love the tap bar downtown El Paso and I just, I was so hungry. I was so thirsty. I was going to die. And I, I had some cash and I was like, I fucking want to go to the fucking tap bar. And so I hung on in the unit. I should have jumped off a long time before walked in. And I ended up in that border area where you're like, you can see Mexico and you're yeah. in razor wire and the train fucking sides and I'm stuck. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And I panicked and got out. And so now I'm out of the train cameras. You can see the cameras like shifting and moving. And oh man, this fucking guy in a white truck pulls up outside the razor wire. And he's like, keep walking, keep fucking walking. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> Nothing really to do right now. So I'll keep walking. And he's like, no one's going to see you if you keep pace with my truck. And I was like, okay, okay. There you he's go. like, there's a gate. It's 50 yards. Keep walking. And I walk. And he jumps out of the truck and he opens it and he takes 50 bucks out of his pocket. And he's like, take this. And I was like, I don't need that. Oh, hell I yeah. actually, I actually don't need that. It's not what this is about. I just need to get out of there. And he was like, get out of there. And he opens the gate and he shuts it smooth as butter. And he's like, where are you going right now? And I was like, I'm going to the tap bar. And he was like, I'll see you later. And that was it. And I was just like, what? this is, Dude, and it proves awesome. the point. It proves the point. It proves that there, there's amidst all this stuff, the cameras, the, the, the technology, all this right. stuff. Right. It proves that the, it, there's still that humanity, that soul, that like belief that like, I want this guy to be doing this. Like it's good. Right. Um, and anyway, last little bit. And, this and is shout out thing. to that guy straight up. That, that, and I've had that happen so many, I've been busted in units so many times and like had guys, I had, I was in my underwear once in a unit, uh, going to going trying to get to jacksonville and a guy walks in and starts screaming it's the middle of the night he starts screaming and he was like like he didn't know i was there it's the middle of the night and there's a guy in his underwear hot as hell like just in his train unit of course he starts screaming and he's like 
he finally calms down. He's like, buddy, you got money? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, do you have food? And I was like, no. And he was like, I got peanut butter jelly sandwiches. He handed it to me. And he was like, where are you going? And I was like, Jacksonville. And he just looked at me. He was like, you are on the wrong train. <laughs> just like, <laughs> and, I really, and he put me right. Anyway, the moral of that story is that that ride, I was trying to get to see my then girlfriend in New York, uh, which is a hard ride to get to, up 95 corridor, all this stuff. And I ended up stuck in Richmond and people who are real train heads know the Richmond yard. And like, you know, like that CSX yard, there were people murdered there. And that murder happened like right. And they were trained people. There wasn't just a random murder. Uh, Their trained kids murdered somebody else. And I was there for seven days. It's when Hurricane Irene hit. So I was soaked. My socks were moldy. I had a mandolin. The mandolin was like covered in mold and fuzz and stuff. It was miserable. Um, And I got spotted by Amtrak at one point. So they called the cops. Feds came. I got smuggled out in the back of somebody's car like taken out of the yard. And the next day I knew I had to go. So I caught UPS and again, UPS fucking flies. And I was on, you know, it's like where they have the whole trailer on the flatbed. So yep. it's under, under the wheel. Well, Piggyback baby. Right? Yeah. Piggyback. And it's, yeah. it's and this, fun. This is, this is where Gord, Gord and the freight train stuff connects, right? Exactly. When they stack the, stack the semi-trailers on the, on the flatbeds. Yeah. Uh, I've done the that idea, a dozen uh, times. Useless factoid. The idea of piggybacking trailers on flat deck rail cars was invented by a guy in Australia. There we oh, go. Hey, there you go. Well, Thanks. That there we right. go. Yeah, God I bless him. All right. And we and then one last detail too, but the people need to know this. So the 95 corridor, the only thing faster than UPS is the juice train. And so I got the passed train. by the juice That's train, right. which yeah. you can't actually ride inside of the cars, but it goes, it carries Tropicana orange juice from Florida up to major Northeastern centers. With the reaper units that'll keep yes. you alive when it's cold. Yeah. And yeah, they dude, strap, I, I, I they a strap reaper themselves. Unit from, yeah. uh, in, in, uh, in California, that's what I wrote from San Luis Obispo down to LA was it was sitting sitting there's a little a little tunnel beneath the reefer unit that you can decide to sit in. It's it's cozy. Yeah. yeah. Um my girlfriend, juice my train. girlfriend has obviously never ridden trains, but she's obsessed with the juice train. She always laughs about that. It's crazy, um, man. Fastest train in the country. But so she she's from DC, and I always tell her this because I find this super hopeful. I was told for year upon year upon year that you could not ride through DC because there was infrared cameras is post 9-11. They're going to find you. They're going to catch you, all this stuff. And I got on this trip of like, this is my heritage. You're going through Antietam. You're going through Quantico, whether it's like, whether it's like the stuff you read about in the New York times now, or the stuff you read about in civil war history, you're seeing all of it in this corridor of Virginia. And I was like, I'm not fucking letting this go. I'm not hitching. I want to be on a freight train through this. I want to ride a freight train past the Washington monument. And the crazy thing is you do see the cameras find you. Like you see the cameras shift, they follow, all that shit is real. But like, they don't do anything because they have so much data. They're so flooded with all this stuff. They're flooded with all this input saying somebody's doing something bad somewhere. That how are they going to get you? And for what purpose do they even fucking care? And so I was so terrified riding through DC and then I was just like, I don't fucking care. This is what I wanted. It's nice. And I just relaxed and I watched the cameras find me, all the stuff and nothing right. fucking happened. And I rode into Philly comfortable as a pea. And I got off and I went to some fucking horrible West Philly squat. And it was the last time I rode a freight train and it was so great. And I 
like, it just, it proved to me like there's more freedom than we think. And that was For my sure. point. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I will say um, it's a shame you didn't do the, one of my, one of my other favorite train routes is along the Erie Canal. So going from Buffalo all the way out to Selkirk, right south. I'm right there right now. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm dude. Home. Yeah, I'm I was going to say, I was going to say, shout out, shout out to Selkirk. Like yeah. I, I, uh, the second time I rode a train into that town, I went to some random bar. I can't remember the name of it. And um, this guy, I can't, I, I just found his name earlier. I was looking through my old journals. So I got his phone number written down somewhere. He, uh, he, he took me and my friends uh, back to his place. He had this beautiful farmhouse that he'd been living in. He worked for the city fixing water mains all throughout the, all throughout the winter time, crazy difficult job. And he just like took us in and fed us dinner and let us stay at his place. And was just a soup was an incredible gentleman. So Selkirk, yeah. one of my favorite little train towns, like, and then, and then you just go straight South into New York city from there. That's, that was my, or my you way. Could, you go through the Hoosack tunnel. If yeah. you go east out of there, yeah. you ever been through that? They never have. Kind of cool. My grandfather, my grandfather helped build the Erie Canal. It's a big part of family lore. So, oh, that's oh, sorry, not my grandfather, my great grandfather. But, um, oh, oh and wait, I have wait. to say one thing. Hold yeah. on, hold on. It's very, very important. It's very important. I'm gonna lose my whole like California expert card here. It's not Gardnerville. It's Watsonville. I was just that's in Gardnerville. It. That's Nevada. where I was. Yeah. I was just in Gardnerville, Watsonville. Nevada. And I got him screwed yep. up. It's Watsonville. That's where I got right. out. Yeah. Nobody, nobody writes me. Nobody writes me. I'm sorry. I got that um, wrong. Watsonville One, actually, strawberries. That's where the girl is strawberries. Uh -huh. The strawberry packing uh -huh. uh, facilities are there. Yeah. I do have one funny train story that's very, very short, which is I was riding. Um, one of my favorite little train towns was uh, was uh, Greenfield, Massachusetts. Uh, and you, and there's, you can catch town. a train going to Boston, you can you can catch yep. a train that goes uh, west back to back, back uh, you know, you the NECR there, the NECR goes up to White River Junction. Out of yeah, yeah, yeah. Another amazing little town. Yeah, like, White, White River is great. Yeah. I love riding trains in Vermont generally, but um, uh, I caught a train going west out of out of Greenfield, and was going through Schenectady, and uh, I was heading back to Buffalo, and you know, I, I sort of vaguely knew that other friends of mine were kind of in the area. But I popped my head out going through Schenectady. And um, as we were passing through, there was another train that was sighted in the yard. And my buddy Darwin stuck his head out of a grainer hole as, we, as I was going past. I didn't even know he was there. I just like saw my random buddy <laughs> in the train yard as we're flying by him going through Schenectady. It was hilarious. And then I, I saw him in I Buffalo like, that. you know, the next week or whatever. It I was so that. funny. Yeah, that's, that's a real thing. There's been so many times I've run into people that I've known in the most obscure locations. It's yeah, so real. It's yeah. It is like this funny small world inside of a much larger world. You know, you kind of you know absolutely run and yeah. run into people that you know and people that you like and people that you don't like and I don't know. It's, you know, I I I'll 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 pose something to you guys. I mean, we're talking about hitchhiking and we're talking about hopping freight trains. Have you guys ever traveled long distances by other means, like by bicycle or or walking? I've wanted to do a bike trip, but I've never gotten around to doing it. No, one I, of these days I'll actually carry it out. I did a lot of that myself. And for a time I used to hitchhike with a folding bicycle. Mm, so nice. you, you'd pull up to a bad spot and then you'd unfold the bike and ride to a good hitching spot. And it was like the, the dream boat. But, yeah, that's uh, great, man. I got to I got to say like uh, walking is so underrated when it comes to the traveling lifestyle. Like if you just walk for like weeks on end, with no intention to hitchhike, no intention to hop a freight train. That's a crazy, that's a crazy feeling, you know, and I don't know. I've noticed 
the 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 slower the means of travel, the more intense it is in a sense because every mile you feel it in in such a strong way, you know. Uh, but I'm, I'm uh, you guys mentioned the Erie Canal. I'm I'm thinking about getting ready to uh, to walk. I want to do that. I want to walk. Oh. It's 360 miles. I want to walk the whole thing. I want to do a big. I want to do a big boat trip. That's oh. that's my. You I can hitchhike. Do. You can hitchhike on the Erie Canal. You can catch mm-hmm. boats across mm-hmm. the canal. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Well, God bless America, y'all. Straight up. Yeah. <laughs> this was great. Talking talk about this stuff really just makes me. I don't know. Like, I let's I let's so honestly let's do another one. Like, we could just do. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah, I, I, I could tell I could stories about stuff all day long. Yeah, I'm 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 real glad you guys accepted my invitation. I'm clearly you're all very excited about this and you find value and meaning from the discussion and from rehashing all of these experiences. Uh, I'm glad I could host it. And I sort of, it's amazing. Again, you know, this technology, it can be surveillance. It can be cameras. It can be body sensors uh, making your life difficult. It can be the internet bringing me to a podcast where I heard about you guys or read an article by James finding Andy on Twitter. Like what, uh, what, what Providence is this, you know? Um, but yeah, I'd have y'all on again. I'm sure we could go forever. We're pushing the better part of three hours here now. Um, this is uh longest voice of Gord yet. And the fun, like I really appreciate all of your guys input here. And just the stories, I I love this. This is like, this is like when you when you're sitting around, um, you're you're stuck somewhere with a bunch of other truckers all waiting to get loaded at some place, and it's all a bunch of old school homeboys that have like been places and have the stories to share. And like I miss that. And here I am getting it on Zoom with a bunch of weirdos <laughs> I met on the internet. You know, like that's right. S- sweet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, th- thank you so much. Any final parting thoughts before we call it a night? Thank you guys. This was awesome. I really liked it. Yeah, no, this is this is great. Yeah, yeah I, no. I, it's it's rare to have opportunities to revisit a lot of this stuff. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, and thanks it's, for it's thanks hard. for getting us all together, Gord. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Gord. This is this. I needed something like this. You know, like this. This lifts my spirits a lot. So thank you. All right. And likewise, and, and yeah, maybe we'll do it again sometime soon. And to any, any of you kids out there that might be listening, these possibilities are still there and you just have to go and do it. I mean, that's all there is to it. There's no, there's no waiting. There's no, no one's going to show you how nobody showed me how I just went and started hitchhiking and started picking up hitchhikers and, y'all did the same thing just you know if anyone's listening to this you know life as it is under this current paradigm is not satisfying to you it's a big world out there and no one's ever going to stop you from walking it or trying to figure out some other way to get around like go get her done don't overthink it don't overthink it don't overthink it that is go feel your agency go figure out how to feel your agency yeah that's the thing yeah Right. All right. Well, thanks, boys. I'm going to call it way of the road.